Hi everybody, it's Phil. Before we get started with this super mega episode 20 of the Post Relevant Podcast, I just wanted to say, first of all, thank you so much for listening to the show. It's meant a lot to me that people have checked it out. And please stick around after the credits of the episode. There's an incredible story I have to tell. It's a story about the one and only time I took ayahuasca. Irrelevant of the name of this show, this story is relevant to the theme of this episode. So please stay tuned after the credits for that story. I will do my best to make it worth your while. After this show, only one more episode to go in our insanely epic decode of the movie Under the Silver Lake. But for now, let's proceed with episode 20 of the Post Relevant Podcast. As we enter the King's Chamber, part three, and pass through the Lion's Gate! Post Relevant Podcast Episode 20 the King's Chamber, Part 
Hi, this is Buzz Wired from radio station G-O-R-K, and you have just won BAM! You know, before you go, uh, that last episode, when you did the, uh, BAM! You got BAM! Bumming around! (laughs) Yeah, you remember that? Oh man, I hadn't heard that since I was like eight years old or something like that, you know? And I listened to the whole album. Oh, you did? How was it? It's so good. It's it's pretty wacky. A couple things don't hold up, but uh, but yeah. a lot of it, a lot of it is very good. And the, there's that whole long um, sketch where they're in that the Chinese restaurant. Right, that's the part that doesn't hold up. The, the very offensive Chinese man accent. I was not a, a huge fan of. Although but, Tommy Chong is Asian. Right, right. I, mean, I do remember the thing that I remembered the most was the uh, guy going. Um, he's like, hey, whatever. This is you know, I can't remember his name. Yeah. But he's like. This is Buzz Wired from D-O-R-K Radio. You have just won BAM! Bumming around money. This is Buzz Wired from D-O-R-K Radio right here in Milwaukee. Do you listen to my show? Okay, it's ringing. Hello. Hi, this is Buzz Wired from D-O-R-K Radio and you have just won BAM! Bumming around money. What do you think about that? Very funny, Larry. Very funny. Goodbye. <laughs> and the guy's like, very funny, Larry. Very funny. <laughs> when I was a kid, I always thought that was a Three's Company reference because the guy who lived upstairs from them was Larry. But I don't think it was. I think it's just a random joke. Goodbye. Well, so that's I right. Get, you I won. gotta get down to the unemployment office. Hey, nice hey. talking to you, man. Hey, well, there's no need to go to the unemployment. Well, we struck out there, but we're gonna give away that hundred dollars. So let's try another number. Just bang. Yeah, play. you know. What's his name? Buzz. There it is. Buzz Wired. Buzz Wired. Radio. Hi, this is Buzz Wired from Radio Station D O R K, and you have just won. Bam! Bumming around money. What do you think about that? Hi, this is Rudy. I'm not home now, but if you leave your name and number at the tone, I'll phone you back. Oh, well, Rudy. That just that sketch of him calling people, trying to give away money, and like no one, no one will take it is hilarious. And they like nailed the they nailed the radio voice like so well. You know, it's just like there's so many small things that they do right. Yeah. Hi, this is Buzz Word from D-O-R-K Radio, and you have just won $100. Bam! That's booming around money. What do you think about that? Uh, el señor dice que he no home. You call Hello. Well, it's getting harder and harder to give away that $100, but we're going to keep trying because, as you know, a dork never gives up. And I have the, the song. There's only one song, and it's been stuck in my head with the oh, guy going. Blowed on? Yeah. Yeah, blowed on, yeah. There's a song called Float On, that that's a, it's a riff on that.
amazing I mean, it's album. definitely of its time, so obviously some of that stuff it wouldn't play now. But right. it's such a permissive, the 70s were such a permissive, that album might even be like 1980 or something. Yeah, I think it is. But it's it is. such an anything goes period of time for yeah. culture that yeah. pretty much can get away with whatever the fuck. Let me take you to Burger Town. What's that? Don't you know how good it can be? That's the song. That's uh, that's from Blood On. That's from Blood On. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> Ice cream. Yeah. And my name is Sugar. I can't believe I listened to that when I was like six years old or something like that. That's what I I say the same thing because we we were listening to that when we were like six or seven, and Dad we'd be listening to that in the kitchen with Dad, and Dad would be sitting there laughing at it. And I mean, I thought it was cool, but I didn't get all the drug references at all. Oh man, it's pretty like uh, adult. It's pretty adult. Pretty risque. Yeah, it's pretty risque. Yeah. That's cool. So you live, I'll have to look that album up and check Dude, it out. It's uh, Let's Make a New Dope Deal. Yeah. It's oh Officer O'Malley from the FBI. You're busted. <laughs> is that when he's talking about table candles, or is that the first Let's Make a New Let's Make a Dope Deal? I think that's the first one. Oh, okay. This this one is he like like he tell he convinces a guy to like cut his finger off. Cocaine. Oh yeah. <laughs> and the dude has, is the, that is like the funniest. Yeah. So he's like the dumbest, funniest Blood. accent ever. You take away one finger, you have four <laughs> fingers, you cut off one finger, what do you have? Blood! <laughs> um, Eminem took that song, Earache My Eye, and he made a tune out of that. The basketball coach done kicked me off the team. Ba-da-da, ba-da-da, ba-ba-da, for wearing high heel sneakers and acting like a queen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like that record and Steve Martin, Wild and Crazy Guy, and maybe some Monty Python albums is probably some of my biggest sort of audio acting influences. Like, it, those are some of the things that made me want to try podcasting because I loved listening to that stuff so much. And there's so much incredible audio design going on in those. Like, Cheech and Chong does some really... It's a lot of audio design happening right. in that. It's in that quite a album. journey from the start of the album to yeah. the end. You're like, yeah. wow. <laughs> like how it's very creative. You're like, how did yeah. they think of all this stuff all and like make it work, you know? Before we start, I'd just like to put out a relatively humble request. If you like what we're doing here on the Post Relevant Podcast and you'd like to support the show, please go on over to patreon.com forward slash post 
relevant and donate to the show. I really enjoy making the show and I'd like to continue and do more. I have a lot of cool ideas for the future, but in lieu of advertising, I don't know. It's kind of tricky in this day and age. So yeah, if you consider it, please go on over to patreon.com forward slash post relevant and donate. You'll be supporting a unique artistic vision. And look, it's either that or I'm going to have to start reading copy for mattresses and nicotine pills. So eh, actually, that's still on the table no matter what. That's patreon.com forward slash post relevant. And hey, thank you in advance. Okay. Honestly, I truly appreciate it. And with that said, three, welcome back to the Post Relevant Podcast. I'm reintroducing the podcast again, again, in this episode to introduce or reintroduce a former guest from episode 10, the legendary episode 10, where I reveal the identity of Sam, the main character from Under the Silver Lake. It's the one and only Carl E. Bogo, AKA Carl Restino. Welcome back to the Post Relevant Podcast, Carl. Yeah, I don't go by Carl E. Bogo. <laughs> <laughs> Tell everybody why I would call you Carl E. Bogo. Well, I think uh, it was when we were when we were kids. We used to get these this stuff in the mail, like a star, you know, the the glow in the dark stars. Oh, okay, and, uh, like stickers. Although somebody else thinks it's because of the Columbia Record Club. It might be because of the Columbia Record Club. But it was Dan, right? It was cousin. No, Dan. it was Chris. Was it Dan or Chris Peters? Oh, no, was it Chris two. Peters? Chris Peters, one somebody, of the co-hosts from the Welcome to the Art Shed podcast. Yeah, yeah. He actually, I think it, it was the Columbia Record, and which and he signed me up as Carl E. Boy Restino. Uh huh. But but they wrote it back as Carl E. Bogo. <laughs> so when we were teenagers, you would get all these letters from random companies that were addressed to Carl E. Bogo. Yes. <laughs> after that, they thought it was funny. We just used it it's after that. Fun. It is pretty funny. Yeah, Carl E. Bogo. Carl E. Boy. Yeah, but Carl E. Boy didn't, didn't work. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it came out as, they were like, cannot compute. You know, <laughs> we're going to put Carl E. Bogo. Would you be pissed if we got Carl E. Bogo to start like to, as, as a popular name for you online? That'd be crazy. I doubt you could do it. All right. Well, there's a there's a challenge right there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I brought you on the show. Uh, you're probably going to be on the s- part three of the King's Chamber. It's looking like the King's Chamber is turning into a three part series. There's this one scene in Under the Silver Lake where the main character, it's right near the end of the movie. He gets brought down underground into this chamber, which is where it's sort of like the lair of the homeless king, who's this, mm-hmm. he's a mysterious character who appears a few times in Under the Silver Lake, and he has the keys to the underworld, essentially. He brings him down there, and he chains him to a chair, and he asks him why he's carrying around dog biscuits, and it's like this moment of truth near the end of the film, and he ends up letting him go, and you can see that the main character has gone through like a transformation after that and that leads to the end of the movie and so i've pretty much figured out that this guy the the homeless king he's played by the guy who was the lead singer from the jesus lizard have you ever seen them no oh 
I love that actor, actually. I think he's great in the movie. And essentially, he's Osiris. And mm. He sort of represents Osiris. And Osiris was uh, more or less the ruler of the afterlife and the underworld in Egyptian mythology. Throughout the movie, they're always going like underground. There's all this stuff that's underground and there's a lot of stuff that's related to death. So in my mind, it's all this different symbology that represents these different mystery schools that started with Osiris in ancient Egypt. They'd bring people underground and they'd meet the goddess or the god underground and have a uh, transformative, sort of like a near-death experience. And they'd come out of it changed. What they were doing was using hallucinogens so that's the part of the, the whole like research, all the research that I've been doing to try to figure out what's going on in the movie. That's oh, really? where it's all led me to are these Gnostic cults from ancient Egypt and Greece and Rome and what have you that goes on up through the Renaissance and eventually turns into the hermetic groups that use heavy symbolism and become like the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians and they end up founding America. And so it's a, like this long, weird tradition of using symbolic language and hallucinogens uh, throughout history. And they, they seem to be having this war with ancient Rome, with like the Roman Empire that becomes the Vatican, essentially. Anyway, I thought it would be cool to have you back on to talk a little bit about mushrooms because I know you've had experiences and I know you've been growing your own mushrooms for uh, as well lately. And so I wanted to find out, first of all, How'd you get into growing mushrooms and what kind of mushrooms are you growing and what are they for? Oh, oh, right. I, I, I grew lion's mane and I grew oyster mushrooms. Yeah. I was brewing a lot of beer and it was just another thing I, you know, growing food and stuff. And, you know, oyster mushrooms are really are kind of easy to grow. Like, so I got a couple flushes, good flushes, right? So the way you do it is you, you have these uh, like mycelium spores and you inoculate this like straw. You take straw and you boil straw and then you... You boil straw? Well, you boil the straw to, to, uh, to sanitize it, like to kill any competitive organism. Okay. That would ever be in it, right? Okay. And then you t then you inoculate the straw, mm -hmm. you stuff it in a bag, you know, in a see-through bag. So you're trying to simulate a log. Oh, right? okay. And then you put the spores in the straw. Where do you get the spores? You can order them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so you put it in, you slash the, um, the bag. So there's air, some air coming in, but you don't want too much. Then the mycelium takes over the bag and then it grows. If the oyster mushrooms come out, you hang them. You try to hang them from a, well, like a, you know, I was doing it outside. Some people have clean rooms, which is the best way to do it, but it takes like more money of a setup and you need a lot of space and you stuff. You need to be dedicated just to doing the mushrooms. I, I would need a bigger house. Yeah. Like I would have to set aside a place in my, I have a small place. So I would need a bigger space to do it. You don't want uh, spores in your house. I mean, I, so I was growing them outside, and, and like the first flush was phenomenal. Like okay. I had all these oyster mushrooms, and then the second one, I had to put them in this case outside. And I put like a because all these little like insects, they see the spores and they 
they just attracted to him and then they start attacking him. Uh-huh. Like I was basically defending, figuring out more and more ways to defend against the insects before they ate them all, ate all the mushrooms. Interesting. And, and uh, I put like different things over it, you know, to, to keep them out. But, you know, there's only so much you can fend off nature. Once they know it's there, <laughs> then they freaking, you know, like, and it takes a while to grow the mushrooms and like, it was like a lot of freaking effort. You know, so yeah, I could usually get one or two flushes before the insects got through every defense that ever existed. And, wow. and then I brought, then I came inside, and I grew a smaller amount, you know, just a little bit. And I did um, this great mushroom called lion's mane. Yeah. Which actually, this is cool. I've read, so lion's mane grows and it looks like this, this giant ball, like a fuzzy ball. Okay. But. As soon as you slice it, it's like thick and meaty. Right. And when you cook it, you cook it in olive oil, and it, it tastes like a lobster or something. It's so good. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And what is lion's mane good for? It's it's actually what they discovered was that it, it, it like, repairs the... Um, it's good for your brain. It repairs your brain. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it's good for memory. It's good for focus. It's, and... Uh, some people say that it, it has like some people take uh, you know eat it and then like if they take supplements and then then they can have uh, lucid dreams on it and stuff like that. Oh really? There was other research where somebody was microdosing on magic mushrooms uh-huh. and taking lions made and they worked in concert to make you more creative. Interesting. Like they they did both two different things. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I heard. I never did the, the micro-dosing, but I I was doing lion's mane. I was, like, growing lion's mane and eating supplements for a while. Mm. It seems like it does something. Did it? Uh, did you notice any actual effects? I think I think so. Yeah. And for a little bit, you do, you know. You get a good night's sleep, you know. I, I mean, I've been trying to, like, lucid dream for a long time, but I'm not really good at it. <laughs> but you could remember more dreams, definitely. Mm. And you would sleep no. well, huh? No, it doesn't help you sleep well. Oh, it does. I don't sleep. I, I don't sleep well. That's my problem. Oh. You know? Yeah, but it's good for your cognition, and it's, it's actually, you know, people swear by lion's mane like it's gonna, um, you know, fighting off Alzheimer's and you know, make, right. you know, it actually grows like the myelin. That's what it is. The myelin sheet in your brain, okay, uh, like in your nerve cells. Like they say, it regenerates it, and uh, and along with like a microdose of magic mushrooms, they say it makes you more creative and stuff like that. Like they both, they both work in concert. Yeah, I know you probably researched talked about Paul Stamets, right? He's no, I haven't, guy. but probably Mark, Mark did. Probably yeah, Mark yeah, did. yeah. I, Mark was saying interesting a couple of things that you said. He was talking about how the mushrooms were giving instructions to the ants to do certain things. Probably. Yeah, no, no, he said he said definitely that's what would happen. He'd like, the mushrooms, somehow they know, the mycelium somehow knows, like, what plants are dying, trees are dying, and so they'll stop getting, stop those plants from getting more water or something like that and redirect the system. They'll sort of like, they sort of like work to direct systems in the forest. 
according to like what needs to grow where and stuff like that and they'll give instructions to the insects like the ants to go and break down this certain tree or something like that and and when to stop and all this stuff so it's pretty it kind of makes sense because uh, they're they're you know ants work on chemical signals and yeah. mushrooms are probably sending out like tricking them and sending out chemical signals and stuff like that yeah, yeah, so yeah, they sort sense. of um, imitate like a, or maybe not even imitate, maybe they are in some ways like a, somewhere between a brain and a nervous system for the earth. Yeah, that'd be sweet. You know, that's yeah, like, I kind of heard that. Yeah, but it sort of makes sense to me just because when you eat them, they that's sort of what they interact with in your body, you know, is the brain and the nervous system. So it just is fascinating to me. And then, you know, with the, the hallucinatory properties i wonder if it has something to do with inhibiting whatever blocks you from experiencing uh you know what they call like the god molecule but uh, like the deep yeah. for your brain to re like receive dmt i wonder if the mushrooms have something to do with that with like inhibiting inhibiting whatever stops you from like experiencing that like dmt explosion in your brain all the time like i know with like ayahuasca it's supposed there's it's two different plants and one of the plants stops your uh, system from it stops it from inhibiting the re the receiving of DMT so you need one of the plants so that you can oh, right, right. get the DMT no no from no, the no, other no, no no one of the so basically this is what I heard DMT breaks down in your gut so probably one of the plants makes it uh, you know transports it through your gut so you can uh, so you can go across the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, but maybe it stops yes. it from breaking it down so that you can actually in, in absorb it instead of yeah. turning, turning yeah, it into whatever, it you know. No so matter you actually... what, you're, you know, there's a lot of stuff thing that with drugs, you know, even in pharmaceutical drugs, if, you, if it's going to your brain, it has to get past the blood-brain barrier, which is a, like a protection to your right. brain, of your brain, you know, like, so it's good that things can't get across the blood-brain barrier, you know, like, but uh, so it needs to get across the blood-brain barrier to enter your brain and yeah. affect it, you know. You ever hear that woman who had a stroke and she yeah. started exper just experiencing consciousness through her, I want to say her left brain? No, probably her right brain. Something like that, yeah, but it was the intuitive. The other brain was dead, yeah. Yeah, the intuitive side, and she started having like this profound spiritual experience from having the stroke and and having that side of her brain not inhibited somehow. And yeah. so I wonder if like the way our brain works is there's something that stops us from sort of contacting, being in contact, or having an awareness of like a larger spiritual world, and then somehow the mushrooms break down that you know like like with ayahuasca you had kind of have an ego death so like the part of yourself that identifies with this reality sort of gets destroyed and that allows for you to then be like a clear channel to the spirit world so it's all about evolution right yeah the reason why we survived this long is you need focus. You, like to survive and not get eaten by a creature, you have to have a focus. If there is a greater reality that we're not experiencing, mm -hmm. it's it's because your brain is geared towards you surviving. Because if you say if you're like tripping around and like seeing the cosmic universe, right. you're gonna get eaten. You know, right. like so. Right. So you're, you know, so you have evolved focus and you have evolved to do tasks yeah. and, and survive and hunt for food and stuff right and if you're like 
one with the universe, uh, you know, you're probably not gonna survive too long, you know? Uh, right, because so. you know when you've eat, done hallucinogens, like, all that shit goes right out the window, right? And suddenly, right. like, money doesn't mean anything, and writing seems, seems, you know, like, not all that worthful, and uh, worthful yeah, you're not is not a word. Function. You're not you don't want to eat. You're not gonna be able to function. Huh? Yeah. 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 So, so there's, a, there's, you know, there's, there's evolutionary systems like that has made, you know, part of the ego is is creating, categorizing, separation, uh-huh, uh-huh. everything different than what you're talking about. You know, yeah. one with the universe stuff. So it it kind of goes against like your instincts and evolutionary instincts. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And it might aid you. You know, I I go back and forth. You know, uh, whether it's real or not. Like the, I mean, it might aid you. Like a like the whole thing about you know you know bringing in you know consciousness like a higher consciousness it might aid you when you're dying to like. I guess really, what is the what would be the how would it ever evolutionary wise? What, what does it matter? You know, like. What do you mean? You know, you know when they say people are dying, they they have like a greater consciousness and they uh-huh. become you know the near-death experiences and stuff uh-huh. i was trying to think like how that evolutionarily could help you if it's not real like say if your brain just sends out a like a signal to make you like think you know that everything's okay so you're not freaking out when you drop dead or something I see. I, but uh, that doesn't make any sense because why you know there's no survival Right. Uh, out of it. You, you know what I mean? Like, like. Um, what do you think? Do you think there is something more than the three-dimensional reality, or do you, or do you just think this is as far as we go? I don't know. I go back and forth. I, I, I think obviously there is. You know. Yeah. There'd have to be. I, I don't know about us transcending our life. I don't know about that. What do you mean transcending sweet. our life? You know, you, tr- you, transcending after you die. The best case scenario, I think, would be just joining back with the with the collective unconscious mm-hmm. of everything. You know, I just don't think, as an individual, like your ego and your individuality is all like learned from birth, uh-huh. right? So, so what do you? So if you die, what are you taking with you? You know what I mean? Is there any like, like do you consider that maybe there's no selfness? I don't know. No sense I mean, of self. I mean, it, like the ego that you know, like, like I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah. it, it, like, what are you like? Like, my whole consciousness is how I feel, and you know, it's all about like, you know, so this superficial things like how I look, how I work, well, yeah, go in the world, and, yeah. and, and and how I am, yeah, like who I am, um, you know, how I relate to others. Yeah. all that is gone if you're dead. You know it seems I mean? like, like you need that individual sense of self in because you're in a body now. So now you need to so be you need to be somebody. Okay. okay. Right. Well, but what I'm trying to say is take all that away. What's, what's left? left? You're right. Yeah. What is There's left? Nothing. Nothing. It it could be a, an awareness of being. In okay. my out of body experiences or my mushroom experiences, I've had as still an awareness of being. Okay, so are you, are you, so are you, 
just a, a small piece of the giant consciousness. Yeah, you're just sort of like a there. A, there was a just being there kind of nest to it. So, so basically, the best case scenario is you just joining back with the with the consciousness, whatever the consciousness is. Yeah. You know, like 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 you're not going to like die and be Phil or Carl or whatever wandering around. You know, because it, like technically, once you strip away everything of you and your body and your your life, yeah, there's not much left. You know what I mean? Like, well, like, like, what's interesting is that if you go onto YouTube and you look up near death experiences, and there's dozens and dozens of people i mean there are whole youtube channels just dedicated to people's near-death experiences they are still individuals experiencing something outside of their bodies right because they're clinging on to the last vestige of, of their individuality but that's still, still remember something's it. there there's still a, a, yeah but they a remember means. they have some they're, they're clinging on to it they're, like <laughs> A century or in the void, you uh, know, like later, you're gonna forget it's all gone. that. You know, you, you know. It's true, man. It, maybe that's how it works. You just eventually like slough off layers of identity yeah. until you're just yeah. a just a breeze in the outer space. You know. Yeah, yeah, but cosmic at least you're the, Zephyr. Yeah, that'd be sweet, actually. Yeah. Give me a cosmic Zephyr. <laughs> yeah. Did you? Okay, so I know. Are you all right with talking about taking hallucinogens? Well, I mean, it's been so long, but I mean, I, I, I wanted to tell you that I just walked across England. So maybe that's kind of like a journey. Like to me, that that seems like a journey, like a like a equal to a, a trip. What'd you do? You know, I walked uh, Hadrian's Wall, which is the, um, it's a wall that the Romans built. Yeah. So we did like 15 miles a day for like seven days walking across. What's the total? It's, it's like 85 miles, but I think like I probably did like 100 miles of walking. Wow. In seven days. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because we did extra, extra stuff, uh-huh. uh, you know, and uh, yeah, it's, it's really intense. Like I was kind of thinking after I finished it, it's not as, you know, drastic, but after I finished it, it felt like, like I could see the world in a different way you know how like like after you come down on uh-huh. the trip uh-huh. you see the world in a different way yeah. in a different light and then you have to go back to your mundane life like yeah. work and crap like that yeah and it and it's like almost harder it's almost not worth <laughs> like, like like you're like you're right yeah like you're like uh, you gain some knowledge and you've seen a bigger reality and then you go back and you're just like, oh, I have to deal with, you know, my boss and this mundane horse shit that yeah. everybody gives a shit about. Yeah. And I think, I think that, to me, that's the benefit of, of, of like, psychedelics. Like, I, I mean, I haven't done them, like, since I was a teenager. So, I, I, I mean, I can more talk about my walk because it felt the same. Okay. It felt like, it didn't feel the same, you know, but it felt like... It was a journey. It was an awesome journey. And every day I was waking up, walking, and seeing all this really cool history and seeing all this stuff. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, there's challenges and, you know, you didn't know if you're going to make it sometimes. You know what I mean? You're like, oh, am I going to have to bail out of this? You know, like, you don't know, you know. And then you eventually, you know, you come out and, and you're not the same person when you, that started. And you're like, oh, yeah. 
like you feel like I don't know a little changed you know but then you go back in reality and now I'm a week into uh, working again and like then you slowly forget about it did you feel a little bit like you were Frodo and Samwise walking towards Mordor I mean especially since the landscape was exactly like that yeah you know there was some some Mordor-esque stuff but there was a lot of Shire Hobbiton stuff you know a lot more of that you know, but then you'd cut, you know, like it actually it ends in, in a city, like in Newcastle, and there's some divey parts of Newcastle. Oh, really? So that's kind of like Mordor, <laughs> you know, like, you that's know, you're, you're in the, you're in the sticks in the middle of nowhere, seeing all this crazy, like Roman stuff. And yeah. Wait, so, what kind of Roman artifacts do you come across while you're in? Oh, you're going to love this. I, yeah. At one point I came across the Temple of Mithras. Oh, really? Yeah, it's this cool temple like that was set up that I, I thought, I mean, I don't, and there was actually people like, I mean, there's got to be witches and stuff in England, and then they put like different, like weird, like trinkets as a sacrifice on the altar, you know, like it was, it was really weird. Like currently they were like someone had just done it the day before or something like that. I mean, it didn't look that old. Yeah. Do you know anything about Mithras? Yeah, you know, I was trying to look that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I don't know anything about Mithras. It's a, obviously a, mo- a Roman goddess from the uh, you know turn of the century. Uh, like so, so uh, Hadrian's Wall is 1900 years old. So it turned 1900 this year. They built it. So it's so from Mithras, around AD 120. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Oh, Mithras is the cult of myth. Wow, that's cool. It says Mithra. Mithra, commonly known as Mir, called the Mediator. Mithra was also called the sun of the shining light that beholds everything and hence was invoked in O's. Oh, okay. The Greeks and the Romans consider Mithra as a sun god. He was also probably a god of kings. That kind of makes sense. Mm. You know, like if, if it's a Roman wall, like the, so it's a military, right? So basically the Romans came to England, take, took over England. Yeah. And they uh, built a wall to keep out the Scots. That's, that's, uh, that's Hadrian's wall. <laughs> uh, that's why they built it, yeah. And so <laughs> Mithra is, is the god of the sun and oats. So O-A-T-H. Sure, like, yeah, oats. Okay. Like, so I'm sure, like, the soldiers had to take an oath or something like so that. So it's like, like a so, military god. I mean, this is my only guess. I, have, I mean, it kind of makes sense because sure. it, it is like you're walking along the wall and it is like military compound. Mm-hmm. Like, they're like you got to think it, it was a military, mm-hmm. you know, that was there that built the wall and they're guarding against the Scots up there. So... That makes sense. So is how they keep the soldiers in line, essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here's a god that that uh, you know you guys can worship and uh, you know take an oath. I don't know. <laughs> sounds sounds good. Well, the it's the cool. Romans were really good at incorporating other people's belief systems and into their empire. So they they'd be like, you can keep your god, but now you have to pay us some money. Yeah. You know, they're kind of smart like that. It does say something about binding. Okay. So maybe that's an oath, but but uh, yeah. that that was weird because in the uh, like on the altar there was like binds of of string. Oh yeah, I'm looking at the altar now. There's like stones and there's a bunch of sticks mm-hmm. that are bound with twine. That was the most interesting thing. And then there's wheat that is bound with more wheat. 
So that was cool. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's like there's like a bowl on the altar. Who knows? I mean, my, my guess is that somebody comes and, I mean, it's either somebody, you know, maybe some Wiccans or something or sure. probably live near there and sure. like do that. Or maybe they just set it up like that. Like somebody, whoever is like in charge of the, the setup of the, I mean, it's basically a stone thing in the middle of nowhere, you know, so. Are there amazing uh, views the whole time? Oh yeah, that's pretty, pretty amazing views you go for a while you know at, at first you're going through all these wooden areas and then all of a sudden you start climbing into the uh the mountains and this i mean not mountains but this higher land like this crags mm-hmm. and cliffs and stuff like that and that's when hadrian's i mean they built the wall on on like the high ground right it would make sense and they have this other thing called the vellum which is a ditch between the wall and the um you know, on the on the flat part, they have a vellum, which is a, a, a narrow ditch, but like before the wall. So I guess if you're trying to attack the wall, you, you have to go through a ditch first. Then it gets gradually higher and higher, like, and then all of a sudden you're on this kind of cool, like cliff-like zone, which uh, you know, you know, they they built it on the high ground, so it's it's pretty cool. And then um, I guess over the years, you know, once the Romans left, they they took the stones and they built different uh you know they, you can see there's all stone houses around there so people just took stones from the wall and built their houses with it so that's kind of cool yeah and you were at the high ground so you were sort of like obi-wan yeah totally yeah i've been having this sort of thought while i've been doing this research all the research that i've had to do for the movie and the stuff that it, you know the places that it's led me and then having all these conversations with everybody from our family and so you're like brewing beer and growing mushrooms and Mark is really into mushrooms and he's had like these, you know, like the, the Burning Man experiences and rock and roll, you know, we're all into rock and roll. And Andy has been doing a TV show about the Greek gods and Christine right. is like this Dante expert essentially. Um, so she had all this information about the underworld and then purgatory and in heaven you know that explains a you know a big chunks of the movie and then i've been i'm doing what i'm doing and what i recently just found out was that we're from this area of italy where all these witches were you know all like came together like it was a huge supposedly oh, really? a huge confluence of uh, witchcraft in that area of italy I, if you believe in reincarnation it kind of makes me the the amount of coincidences sort of makes me wonder like did we all exist in like other aspects of our family lineage like a thousand two thousand years ago huh why would you be reincarnated into like a relative that doesn't make any sense actually that is what some people who have sort of you know delved into that idea talk about a lot is that you reincarnate over and over again in the family lineage oh that's weird that's yeah kind of sucks if you're in a crappy like uh, <laughs> hey, well it's sort know, of like, like your pro- your spirit's project and the planet is like to develop this strain of dna and humanity and to make certain changes in progress with a you know what i mean well i think it more makes sense that like the relatives were totally into like cool spiritual creative stuff and we inherited their 
Right? Means. Sure. You could look at it that, that makes, way. Sure. That makes kind of more sense to me. It would be you know programmed I mean? into the DNA. Well, okay. So I guess you can get around it. No, but I mean, it totally makes more sense that. Sure. Like that. Like it's a creative gene that we've inherited over the years. You know. Yeah. Uh, I th- You know what the other thing I thought was. Um, I, when I was watching Hadrian's Wall, it was like a Roman. We have Roman and English blood in us, so it was like a confluence of Romans in yeah. England. Yeah. Uh, English was Hadrian's Wall, which yeah. is pretty cool. So I was like, "Oh shit!" I'm kind of seeing two of my, you know, historical. Yeah. And you're you know, ready to kick any Scottish person's ass if you. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> No, it, it's funny because in that part of England, a lot of people have kind of like an accent that almost sounds Scottish. And sure. Yeah, you know, they probably are, you know, identify with Scots up there, I'm sure. I would love to go to Scotland, honestly. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, totally. That's what Mark said. Yeah, I'd love to spend some time there. I, you know, it's good. It's better to spend time with the people who have been oppressed because they're they've still got connections to like the all the old druidy shit you know so yeah but every everybody's been a friend so like, like there's all I mean, england sure. there's peasants there's only one small one percent of people who yeah who aren't oppressed yeah you you're know? right yeah you're right and they've douched on everybody else <laughs> well they've gotten they've everyone to douche on everyone else and they've pitted on us against each other right you know, so right bastards those motherfuckers yeah. I hit him with my broadsword. Uh, yeah, well, cool, man. Uh, anything else that you... Uh, any other ideas that... Just in, in relation to, like, the idea of mushrooms in the afterlife, brewing beer, that kind of thing. Any other thoughts on your brain about all that? I guess, I guess um, like, the cool thing about brewing beer, and, 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 and like, like you said, like, the, uh, you must have gone into this in your talk, uh, in your research about... Uh, the Greeks, like the Greek philosophers, mm-hmm. that they had this induction ceremony where people think it was hallucinogens. It was like all the yeah, that's uh, exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and they and, would even uh, go and hang out in caves without the hallucinogens and like lie down in a cave for like three days and. Yeah, yeah, no, there's like, well, that's what I was trying to say. The walk is kind of like, like, there's multiple ways to change your your brain, you know, and to to like evolve instead of, like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like walking, you know, meditating, not eating, you know, like right. there's harder ways. Like the acid is the easy way. I mean, it's right. super easy. Like you know what I'm saying? It's not easy, but it's it's like the quick the quick shortcut, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and there's something about going underground that it must like be con- conducive to having that kind of an experience for some reason. I'm I'm saying it's it's darkness, like it's it's yeah. like cutting your senses off. You know what I mean? Like that's why you know I, I would say like because you're, you're you're thinking like ancient people went into a cave. This is what I okay. This is my theory on that. Let's hear it. You know. So the reason why you know you're an ancient Neanderthal like guy or an ancient human like hunter gatherer right that's what we're talking about well no you know, we're talking about these these uh agricultural societies now like the romans and the greeks and what have you i mean now they're an agricultural community that are still well, going right, into right, caves right. to the contact the afterlife but the first ones who are going into caves are hunter gatherers sure they're living in caves 
they're kind of living in caves. Yeah. I mean, there's some evidence that they're not living in caves. They're at, you know, they're they're like going in, like their shamans are going into the cave. Right, right. I'm kind of thinking like the reason why you're going into the cave and doing mushrooms in the cave and, and is because if you're on acid or mushrooms, you know, you're kind of defenseless, right? Oh, so, interesting. So, so it's like set and setting. Like mm-hmm. you get your mind right. And you go in a cave, and, and like nobody's gonna bother you there, you know. So you know, you, so maybe that's part of it. Who knows? Mm. Like I guess if you get your brain like not thinking about like, you know, if you're all paranoid about like getting you know eaten by a bear or something like that, you know, yeah. it's probably gonna be a hard trip or whatever. Or maybe they're into that. Who knows? Hi, <laughs> hi, right, right, dude. Well, I think it's probably good enough. Hold okay. We're gonna have some fun time editing this one. It'll be fine. And this is the so, least of my worries, this one. <laughs> if people wanted to find you online, they can look up um, Welcome to the Art Shed podcast, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or, or mostly my artwork I want people to see. So Carl Restino on Instagram uh-huh. and Carl Restino's art page on, on Facebook. That's where I put all my art. What's your website? Madcarl.com, but I don't update that too much. Okay. I mostly do the, the Instagram stuff because it's easier. Okay, okay. And then, yeah. yeah, you and Andy and Chris Peters had the Welcome to the Art Shed podcast that you did. How many? 33 episodes, something like that? I think there was at least 50. Really? Yeah. I thought you got up to the 30s. Okay, cool. That's awesome. All right. And I'm on that a few times. So, yeah, check his shit out. Cool, man. I can't wait. Yeah, you're probably going to end up being in part three of this whole amalgam. So I'll definitely let you know. But um, this is going to be really cool. I'm excited that you got to be a part of this. Thanks, man. Awesome. Cool. Later. All right, later. chamber, I spoke of the beginning of time, where, from the darkness and the ocean of chaos, emerged a sacred mound which gave birth to the sun and the fiery phoenix bird. This mound is symbolized in Egyptian society by the Jed Pillar, a tall obelisk with a pyramid or cross on the top of it, which also symbolized the ancient city of the sun, Heliopolis, as well as the staff of the creator god Ptah, and the spine or phallus of Osiris, the god of death and resurrection. Seemingly resting at the heart of the Egyptian creation myth and mysteries, one may wonder, is there evidence for the existence of this actual sacred mound of creation still present in modern-day Egypt? Welcome to the King's Chamber, Part 3. Chapter 5, The Stairway to the Stars. Rising from the Egyptian desert like three massive mountaintops stand the Great Pyramids of Giza. This man-made mass of 13 million tons of solid rock holds within it answers to every mystery of nature. If one studied its geometries, one may determine anything. From the circumference of the Earth, to the ratios and orbits of different planets' journeys around our sun, 
to the secret designs of the human body. Many Egyptologists insist the pyramids to merely be tombs for ancient pharaohs. But I suspect these step marvels to be resurrection temples, stairways to the stars, designed to transform kings into light beings and ascend them back to the heavenly luminaries from whence the first gods fell. These three temples, especially the Great Pyramid itself, which contains the king's and queen's chambers, are the living church to the Zep Tepi, the mythical first time when an initiate stands before this pyramid, he or she stares up into the memory of the sacred mound of creation itself. I mean, these sound like awesome, like an awesome ceremony to be involved with, you know? <laughs> like if you were, if this is just part of your normal rearing and uh, like life life experience that you get pulled into this psychedelic like underground ceremony like and that's like everyone in your like community like goes through the same thing that sounds like an awesome way to face a society to me at least well i mean we're kind of moving that that's sort of what we're turning into now think so but it's not ritualized you know and there's not like the way i feel like people nowadays pursue pursue these kinds of things very frivolously and not very not in like a spiritual awakening not in a sense of spiritual awakening so much some people do but a lot of people pursue it frivolously you know i know exactly what you're talking about but i i think i'd be able to show you that these dionysian and goddess traditions are happening in the world right now and that the power structure has been trying to design society so that we move into those traditions but i'm not going to do that yet so what i wanted to do with you was talk to you about what you know about mushrooms it's funny you know like what you the way you phrased your question your your statement just then it would have nicely segued into me talking about how like we've been subverted into this sort of like Dionysian tradition in our current society so organically you're doing great but <laughs> I, I don't I don't quite want to I don't quite want to go into that yet I what I'd like to do since I've been talking so much is to hear from you and hear what you know about mushrooms and why you got into the whole concept of mushrooms I mean you named your business after mushrooms, correct? Yeah, yeah. My, my business is, I, I'm a consultant in the business. It's called Mycelium Strategies. And so what does that mean? Why did you call it Mycelium Strategies? What is that all about? Well, the idea is like, the mushroom is like the fruiting body of a larger network of fungal threads that exists underneath the ground. And it's called Mycelium. And the, the fungal thread is a, is a network that tends to live you know in the wild under the forest and it people call it like the wood web because it sort of like networks all the trees together the wood wide web yeah yeah so people this is okay all these all the mycologists now are all nerds so they're like trying to make connections Uh but it's very similar to the the internet in a lot of ways it's right it's a network that exists under the ground, but it's a physical network. It connects the trees and the plants together, and it distributes resources to the different trees and plants. And it's all, it's a fungus. It's a living organism that lives under the ground. And it's actually really interesting that a, uh, 
The mycelium itself, even though is not is technically separate from the trees and the plants, uh, increases the plant's abilities to ingest uh, nutrients, and so it makes the forest. It, it increases the the forest's ability to grow and thrive. And there's been like lots of like analysis of it lately because um, people are just like starting to realize like how incredible it is. Scientists have sort of been studying it for for like the past whatever, you know, uh, very closely in the past like decade or so, and they've been able to see it like, so like if a tree, it, it like intelligently distributes resources. So if a tree is dying, the mycelium will not give that tree nutrients and favor other trees, right? Or when the climate starts changing, right? Like wherever we're going through like climate change now, things are getting hotter. Like the mycelium will start to distribute more nutrients to trees that are better suited to survive in the new climate and distribute less less resources to the to the plants that aren't going to do as well in the new climate so wait, wait say that again how what do you mean the new climate like, so wait. like so let's say you live in uh california right and there's like a like a big forest like a redwood forest or something like that and traditionally like it's been in this area where it's been very moderate heat right but now as like the the world gets a little bit warmer you know and you know like climate change happens all the time naturally and you know human made right so there so there's been ice ages and stuff like that so climate change it isn't like a phenomena that's only occurring now it, it happens all the time yes right so yes. so the mycelium will uh let, let's say that it's getting warmer to the point where the trees the the certain trees aren't going to be able to live as well in a hotter climate right uh -huh. the mycelium will start to distribute more resources to trees that are better suited to survive in the new climate does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And they... So is that... Yeah, go ahead. Well, they, people don't know how it how it knows it, to do this. It just does it, you right. know? It's sort of like a... It feels like a... It, it feels like it most, most resembles, if we want to put it in like a human metaphor, the brain or the nervous system. Right, right. And so that, yeah, so the biggest organism in the in the world is a mycelium network that's underneath central Oregon uh, where the sorry western Oregon where the the big fir forests are and it's like thousands of square miles in area they say it has enough network connections where it has as many connections as a human brain so from there like it is a network that's as complex as the human brain and so from there it's it's like kind of it's not crazy to jump to the conclusion that it could, it is like, it could have intelligence, you know? It sounds a little crazy because that we don't think of intelligence in that way, but you're seeing this underground fungus behaving in a way that, that is hyper aware and like strategic and smart. So it's like, well, how does it know how to do that, you know? I was watching The Green Planet, which is a new David Attenborough documentary, and there's a scene where this fungal, this fungus underneath the ground, it gives leafcutter ants this certain like a food source, and the leafcutter ants, and basically the this chemical that it gives the ants, it tells it to go cut a certain tree, uh, cut cut certain kind of leaf, and bring it back to the fungus so that the fungus can grow, and so it's basically like 
It's like brainwashed. You're saying the fungus tells the ant to go and cut this? Yeah, the fungus gives the ant a chemical that makes the ant want to go and cut a specific leaf that the fungus needs. So it's like mind controlling the ant to go get it the resources that it can grow. And then there was also this weird thing where like, so the plant that it's taking from, like as, as soon as the ants get to the point where it starts to get to the, cause you know, if a plant doesn't have leaves, it'll die, right? And as soon as the ants, yes. then these, these leaf cutter ants can destroy an entire plant in like, you know, an, an hour or something like that. They can remove all the leaves. And so as soon as it gets to the point where the, the plant is about to die, the plant releases like a, a poison, like in defense, a self-defense chemical that becomes like a poison pill. And the ants bring it back to the fungal network. The fungal network gets the poison and then tells it realizes that it's getting poison and tells the ants to go to a different plant. And so that way they never actually kill any of these plants that the, that the fungus is harvesting. You know. Yeah, you know, um, supposedly the smell of fresh cut grass is the grass giving off a pheromone that it's injured. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. it's just like, it's it's really, I know a lot, in a, in a Darwinian sense, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of stuff seems to happen accidentally, you know, where it's like, mm -hmm. uh, there's a flood and, or like this thing is born with an extra, a longer beak and it can reach more grubs and therefore the longer beak the longer beak bird becomes the dominant bird but it's pretty hard to like imagine this sort of relationship of a fungus and ants <laughs> evolving yes. by accident you know yes and what does that imply to you i mean i think it implies that there is like there might be some sort of like a, a extra awareness to the to the fungal network you know and i don't you could mm call it i don't know what i don't know if we actually have the right words to talk about it because our human understanding uh -huh. of what intelligence is is so limited you know yeah. it's so strict yeah. so that we will only define things as intelligent if they can like walk and talk but um right but you know this fungus which is an animal you know like is is exhibiting behaviors that are like pretty hard to can easily be you can draw a line to say this is exhibiting intelligent behavior you know i'm not saying that it's a sentient being maybe it is i don't i don't know you know like um but um and they they've actually like been a certain person this one scientist has been mapping the signals at the because the fungal the fungus uh, sends signals through electric waves the same way that a brain does so they've been trying yeah. to map out the language of the fungus and they've been able to distinguish words that are like commands you know so the what? yeah so that like what i can't remember exactly what what it was that the but they were able to to like distinguish a pattern, a pattern, a pattern that, of, represent, that could yeah. be, represent a word you know and they've been able wow. to, to figure out four or five of these and that would make you sense because how else well you've always yeah i've always had the sense that like insects are robots uh -huh. you know so they're like nature's robots yeah so it kind of would make a lot of sense since they have so much interface with the trees and the ground, the dirt, all that, you know, in a way that like a worm is important for processing soil, right, 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 to make it more fertile, like it needs to be there. So they have such a symbiotic relationship with nature on a really profound way that it's almost just like they're just like the little arms and legs, the nanobots of nature. And then maybe if you could look at the 
fungi, the mycelium as a nervous system that maybe is relaying the commands of the brain of the earth? Yeah, yeah, it seems like it. I mean, uh, I mean, it's hard to like, I mean, it, it's speculation, you know, it's hard to understand like what, I don't think we, we understand what exactly is going on, you know, but it seems like. Well, I would at least say that the earth is undeniably alive, Absolutely, right? absolutely. So why not it have a sentience that, a complex, a very complex sentience that potentially would use fungi as a way to transmit right, information right. to Well and that nature is brilliant, you know, when you look at it, there's like yeah. there's like the, the the nature's creative ways to thrive in every scenario, in every square inch, you know. It's like in the in the way that the earth and the natural the natural world solves problems is extremely creative and like not like like it makes human problem solving seem really uh, uh blunt you know like they're the way that nature solves problems is always really elegant and like very pretty and like very um almost unbelievable sometimes when you break the stories down you're like oh this is this yeah. system works like this and it sustains itself and it never kills itself yeah and it could, could just yeah. continue to to work in symbiosis for eternity you know uh, and then when it dies, like it, if that system dies, like another system springs up in its place, you know, and it just sort of yeah. layer upon layer in every direction in every part of the world. This is kind of like, it does seem very intelligent. I was just listening to this guy. I think, I think this is the guy who said it, but this guy named Dan Winter, who's this fucking genius. Listening to him talk is like, he might as well be talking of like a language from Pluto or something. <laughs> His sentences are so complex and bizarre. Um, but he's invented these, this one invention that I've tried called the Therify, which is based on the phi ratio, which is the ratio of nature. Mm -hmm. So like the phi ratio is the ratio that creates the the way a pine cone is formed uh -huh. or an apple is, is formed. Is that the, the Fibonacci whatever? Yeah, yeah, the Fibonacci spiral that sequence so like the ratio of the distance from the shoulder to the elbow and then the, sh the distance from the elbow to the wrist but the way where our bodies are built the distances between the planets they're all on the same ratio right, right. and supposedly like the great pyramids were constructed with that ratio in mind as well but he was saying i believe this was him who was just saying this i was listening to an interview with him and he was saying that everywhere there has been a patriarchy deserts grow <laughs> the proliferation of patriarchy in human society leads to deserts. wow so i think that's a very profound idea because <laughs> it's, a damn, it's a really damning <laughs> right because it seems like patriarchy and i'm not just slagging men like look i, I i'm a man i'm cool with being a man <laughs> You know uh -huh, what I mean? Uh -huh. It's all good. But, but man and but patriarchy. The hierarchical, the hierarchical system is bad for nature, essentially. That our hierarchical, top-down, Saturnian Roman Empire system of control leads to death in nature. It leads to the wasteland. Right, right, yeah. And so if we wanted to mimic nature, we would choose potentially a more matriarchal or synthesized system that is uh, non-local, essentially. There's no, it's more like a mushroom where it's a network instead of 
a top-down hierarchy. And that's how we would rule, that's how you would, let's not even say rule, rule is the wrong word right. because you don't want to rule. Essentially, you want to allow progression right. and development and, and achievement and change, right? And you want to do that through waves of networks instead of one guy telling everybody to do this right, now. Right, right. Yin versus the yang, the, the, the mm -hmm. nurture energy. Yeah, and so I kind of get that feeling when you're describing the mushrooms and the way that nature works. And I mean, it's just really fascinating. Now, when you say it's the largest organism in the world. That means it's bigger than every other organism. It's bigger than the biggest whale. It's bigger than the... And it exists underground. It's all it's underground all, as one massive yeah, thing. Yeah, it's all through interconnected threads. The threads themselves are just tiny little strings. And if you, um, you know, if you throw, uh, if you go poking around under leaves after a rainstorm or something like that, sometimes you can see the little white threads. That's it. That's the mycelium. It's just fungal threads. But the, the network of them together is the biggest living organism on the planet. Okay, so let's say we have a mushroom, just a regular white mushroom growing off the base of a tree, right? Mm -hmm. Is there a thread leading up to that mushroom from yeah, the system? Yeah, the mushroom is the fruit of the network. So when the whenever the conditions are right, for whatever reason, mm -hmm. the fruiting body is the mushroom. It's like the it's like the orange of the yes that comes off the tree. That's what that's what the the network gives off is these mushroom fungus. It's a node. Yeah, yeah. And it, so in the, I live in the, in the Pacific Northwest, there's one of the richest, you know, uh, mushroom foraging areas in the, in the world. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of, you can go out into the woods and find all sorts of like crazy mushrooms everywhere, you know, that are, some of them are edible. A lot of them are, they're like the most delicious ones right here. Like, uh, and then some of them are like, not very edible, but have medicinal qualities, you know, and then some of them have hallucinogenic qualities, and then some of them are just, you know, very poisonous for whatever reason. What do you think the purpose of the poisonous ones are? I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure. You they know? must be protecting something. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to know why, but, but it's also like, I don't know that it, it's just, it is something that exists in nature, you know, like, like mm. nature nature we were talking about bears earlier today nature can be dangerous you know like for it, sure it makes sense that you know some of some of it some fruit is poisonous you know i don't know why the fruiting bodies themselves like don't really like this the mycelium network can live forever and not fruit and not fruit a mushroom i don't really think. but it is a way that it spreads spores you know so so it, it can move and grow you know with the with the fruit is there a mushroom that might be like poisonous to a person but a bear can eat it that's a good question i don't know i don't you have to imagine that like it's because it's all about adaptation that they're probably developing strains of mushrooms relative to what's going on in the area and what needs to happen or to protect a certain thing that's happening in a certain area. Right. right. You know what I mean? It right. has to be all circumstantial and relative to what's happening in the local to where the particular mushroom is. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I was saying before, it's kind of, it's hard to understand the certain things without under, because we don't understand like the big picture of it, you mm -hmm. know? But somebody was telling me that, so like all of the oil in the world is from decomposed trees, right? Okay. But it all came from trees pre-fungus. So there was a time in the in the world oh. where 
there was no fungus on the planet. So, and people speculate that it's an extraterrestrial. It came in on a meteor like or something it. like that. And so now fungus, every time a tree dies, it's breaking down, broken down by the mycelia fungus fungal network. And it turns the trees into nutrients and then distributes it, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no new oil. There, all the oil that's in the earth is all we have. All, mm-hmm. There's no, there's no new oil being made because at some point, fungus was introduced to the ecosystem, and it started breaking down trees, all, all of this organic matter that used to just rot and decompose and compress and turn into oil. Wow, fascinating. Yeah, so it's like what. How did this thing get here? You know, what is it? Why? Why is this like? Why is fungus? Why is why is fungus like? But but what a crazy what a crazy turn of events that is, right? Yeah. I, that sounds like a pretty striking change from yes. one from before and after. Just as the Nile River was believed to be the earthly version of the Milky Way, the Egyptians, like many ancient megalithic civilizations, arranged clusters of temples and pyramids throughout their kingdom to mirror the stars of the night sky. Chapter 6, The Mirror of the Milky Way. Specifically, the three pyramids of Giza, as observed by author Robert Laval, seemed to line up with the three stars in the belt of Orion. The Great Pyramid of Khufu and the Middle Pyramid of Khafre align on a diagonal and mirror the stars Alnatak and Alnalan, respectively. The third and smallest pyramid, Mankare, is offset to the left of the diagonal, just as the third star in Orion's belt, Mintaka, is offset from the other two stars in the constellation. Yet, Robert Laval realized the current positioning of Orion and the Milky Way in the night sky didn't quite match the relationship of the Giza pyramids and the Nile River. Observing the 26,000-year wobble of the Earth's rotation, which is known as the precession of the equinox, Baval used computer models to determine the three pyramids and the Nile River only properly lined up with the Milky Way and the Belt of Orion approximately in the time of 10,500 BC. With this observation, one could speculate that the potential creation date of the pyramids lands squarely in the zodiacal age of Leo, with the constellation of Leo visible in the eastern sky. Coincidentally, The Giza Plateau's other significant feature, the Great Sphinx, a 244-foot-long, 66-foot-tall lion statue with the head of the pharaoh Khafre faced east, seemingly pointing towards the constellation of the lion. It has also been theorized that the water damage on the Sphinx dates the statue back to sometime around 10,000 BC. An inscription on the stele located between the paws of the Sphinx, dated at 1450 BC, read, This is the splendid place of Zeptepi, the first time. A few miles from the Giza Plateau, 
inscribed on the walls of the Pyramid of Unas, are the Pyramid Texts, the oldest religious texts in history, which tell the story of a religion of the night and of the dead. The Pyramid Texts describe how the pharaohs would become stars in the kingdom of Osiris, saying things like, the king ascends to the skies as a star, and may you traverse the winding waterway, and may you go to the place where Orion is. To the Egyptians, the constellation of Orion was Osiris, the god of resurrection. The star Sirius was the goddess Isis. When the pharaohs returned to the place of Orion, they would be returning to the first time, Zeptepi, the golden age from whence Osiris and Isis were born. For such a massive structure, there are only three known chambers in the Great Pyramid. From the entrance, a descending passageway leads to a subterranean chamber. An ascending passageway first leads to the Queen's Chamber. Above the Queen's Chamber is the large, diagonally ascending hallway known as the Grand Gallery. This culminates in the largest room, the King's Chamber. The King's Chamber measures 34 feet east-west by 17 feet north-south. The room is about 19 feet tall. There are no inscriptions on the walls. The only object in the room is a sarcophagus made from a single hollowed out block of granite. There are four air shafts leading out of the king's and queen's chambers, continuing until they exit the Great Pyramid. One shaft points towards the Little Dipper constellation. Another points to the star system Alpha Draconis. Significantly, a third shaft from the queen's chamber points to the star Sirius, and the fourth shaft, emanating from the king's chamber, points directly at the belt of Orion. Is there any evidence of fungus growing near like an asteroid? that has hit the earth or something like that? Like are specific strains of fungus that, do you know anything like that? that no, maybe... I've never heard about that, but I know uh -huh. that they've sent it into space. They sent spores into space and then brought them back uh -huh. and they and resuscitated them. So they put them in outer space, uh, just floating around and then brought them back. Unprotected? Unprotected, yes. And, and they then survive? brought them. They get, they're just like in some, some sort of stasis or hibernation. Wow. And then when they bring them back, when they brought it back, they were able to like uh, still act as spores and still be alive. So it's not crazy to think that it came in on, wow. on, a, on a, a celestial body, you know, just by happenstance. Wow. So it could potentially survive on an asteroid or something, a comet or something like that. Mm -hmm. Could get frozen then, on a comet and be deposited on a planet. Right, right. And, but then even like, how crazy is that? This random thing lands on the planet and it create, it helps every, it helps all of the organic beings that are already on the planet, like grow better. You know, it becomes like this hyper nurturing energy. Yes. Like that sounds, that's pretty weird. Is think. it random though, is the question. I mean, if you're saying that there's an intelligence to the planet and that it it's using mycelium to communicate information and give instructions 
to different creatures and plants and things like that to make certain things happen, then why maybe there's a larger consciousness in the universe that's being like, oh, this planet needs fungus now in its development, so I'm gonna send, the, I've got this uh, comet over here that has water with fungus in it, and I'm gonna have it crash onto this planet. Right, right. And let that process begin. Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe there's just, and maybe it's not rare that a random comet has, but maybe it's on like every comet or like 50% <laughs> of comets and they crash into all the planets, but only Earth has the correct, you know, we know Earth is like rare, at least in our local galaxy, but we don't know other planets like Earth, right? So, oh, well, check this out. Check this out. So there's this guy in the 1500s named Giordano Bruno, okay? What a cool name. He is also from the same area where that farmhouse was, where they found like the different brews of wine with the traces of opium and cannabis and lizards and all that. He's also from that area, the same area where we're from. And he was, in the 1500s, he was a Dominican friar, a philosopher, a mathematician, a poet, a cosmological theorist, and a hermetic occultist. Nice. And he created this theory called the infinite universe or the gospel of infinity, okay? Mm -hmm. And he proposed that stars, he was the first person to propose this, that stars in the sky were actually distant suns surrounded by their own planets. And that those planets may have life on them just like our, we do. They call that cosmic pluralism. He also said that the universe was infinite and has no center. Sounds like a pretty smart guy. And so he's influenced by Hermeticism, the Hermeticism of Thoth. So this is like right around the end of the 1500s. He gets put in prison by the Catholic Church because he denies the concepts of eternal damnation, the divinity of Christ, the virginity of Mary, and the transubstantiation, which is when they, in the ceremony, when they turn the bread into the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. He denies all that stuff for some reason. But he believes in this gospel of infinity. Maybe because all that stuff is like bad shit. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. He's not into that shit. He's not into those concepts. But he says, quote, this is a quote from him. Many worlds, many suns, even with human beings on them. So that's his theory, is that every star in the sky could potentially be a sun just like ours. And he prescribed to the ideas of Copernicus, which is that the Earth revolves around the sun, and that the Earth revolves, and that's why the Earth spins, and that's why the stars spin, you know, that's why the stars move across the sky. That it's not a still thing, that the Earth is spinning. Right. So he right. prescribes to that shit, and then he goes on with the Gospel of Infinity, that every star in the sky is potentially a sun and that is potentially surrounded by planets that have life on it just like our, ours do and the church doesn't like that and they put him in prison and he stays in a vatican dungeon for seven years and then because he won't he won't deny his theories and all that they burn him alive right and right. that's when hermeticism goes back underground oh wow in 1600 do you think this is where the word hermit comes from then uh, probably. Someone hiding underground? Like that would make a lot of sense, yeah, or hiding alone, you know, mm -hmm. up on a hill, wherever, underground, sure. But yeah, so that's interesting that you were saying that, because I was just reading about this guy today while I was studying these ideas of Hermeticism and 
and the progression of, you know, of these, these mystery schools that are using things like mushrooms and ergot and what have you to affect consciousness and how they had to keep on going underground and becoming and calling themselves mystery schools and speak symbolically. In a way, the way that they dealt with the top-down oppression of the Roman Empire is sort of like, you know, they became like pods that they adapted, essentially. They had to learn how to adapt in the same way. They became like these hidden networks. Kind they of became like, an underground network. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So, uh, all right, so here, so that kind of leads me into sort of what we have going on potentially in our country today. So there's this guy named Jan Irvin, and he is sort of taking the opposite tack of, you were saying, I was describing these mystery schools and you were saying, what a wonderful thing, right? Mm -hmm. He seems to come from this opposite tack. And so he believes that God is the Logos and the Logos is reason, logic, and truth and that you need reason, logic, and truth to live in reality instead of escaping reality by taking hallucinogens or something like that, okay? Mm -hmm. And so that Jesus is the embodiment of the Logos. He's the Logos, the Word made man. Uh -huh. So Jesus is the representative of God, of the Logos, of reason, logic, and truth, okay? And that that is the, that is the way to connect with God. So he's done all this research to show that the introduction of mushrooms into modern society was done through the CIA and MKUltra. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I've, I've read a bunch about that. It's all, it's super fucked up. It's interesting. So the way that psychedelic <laughs> mushrooms were reintroduced into modern society was in the 50s, this guy named Gordon Wasson who worked with the CIA, he's essentially considered to be the founder of the field of ethnomycology. Okay. But Gordon Wasson worked for the J.P. Morgan Bank, and J.P. Morgan is one of those power players. Those uh -huh. essentially are like Illuminati kind of power players. Sure. And he was the vice president of propaganda for the J.P. Morgan Bank. Okay? Sounds and scary. the address of his office at J.P. Morgan was also listed as the address for the MK Ultra subproject 58. Oh my god. So he this guy's working for MK Ultra. And in 1955 he goes and tries psychedelic mushrooms. Um, he finds this Mazatec priestess named Maria Sabina. I think they're somewhere in the area of where the Aztecs are. They're called the Mazatecs. Interesting. And she introduces him to these psychedelic mushrooms. Um, that's in 55. So in 1957, I believe that's when he writes his Time Magazine article about psychedelic mushrooms and introduces the concept of psychedelic mushrooms into the modern era. I mean, this is a fucking Time Magazine article. So, I mean, Time, Time Magazine is like, doesn't get much it's more a, mainstream than about, that, yeah, right? As so, mainstream as possible. It's pretty safe to say there's propaganda going on. Okay? It turns out, supposedly according to this guy, Jan Irvin, that uh, Gordon Wasson learned about these psychedelic mushrooms. He says that he learned about them from studying an Aztec cult that would do human sacrifice and cannibalism. And that supposedly he, these Aztecs would, they would do something where they would do like a feast every 20, 
They would sacrifice people every like 20 days, according to their calendar. And then periodically, they would have a feast where they would eat the people. Is this with the taco in the heart? Yes, they would even use <laughs> use a, uh, a tortilla to grab the heart. Maybe <laughs> I don't know if they'd eat it right away, but maybe they'd just use the tortilla as a way to grab the heart out of the body. I love it. I'm, I wish I could try that. So they're a cannibalism cult. They would eat mushrooms while they cannibalize people and murder them for human sacrifice. So supposedly, this is where Gordon Watson gets this idea <laughs> of psychedelic mushrooms, and he introduces it into American society. So they start with mushrooms, and then eventually they figure out a way to move it over to LSD, which I think they probably, like, you know, easier to mass produce. And they like the effects of what LSD does to people. Like, you can find old videos of, like, regular, like, normally dressed people. Supposedly they would have parties where they'd introduced LSD at the party, like, in the late 50s, early 60s. And it would be with regular people, and the guy introducing the LSD into the party would be, like, a dentist. So he'd be, like, the person who'd have access to the chemicals. You can see like these regular people trying to describe what they're going through on LSD. It's really fascinating. You can find videos of that on YouTube. Did you watch the um, Wormwood? Have you seen that? No, the Errol that? Morris. What's it's that? An Errol Morris Netflix documentary about MK Ultra. And it's called Wormwood. Yeah, it's called oh, Wormwood. It's about this guy who was a. Uh, oh man, I can't remember. He was a U.S. scientist who was like entangled in the Cold War MKUltra uh -huh. program uh -huh. and they gave him LSD to try and I think they were trying to figure out it's a really it's kind of a fucked up story they, they were trying to figure out if he was going to like follow their orders or not because they were thinking about uh-huh you know dosing people with yeah. LSD yeah. and I think it made him uncomfortable because he was like one of the scientists that that, that was working on it and oh, um, interesting they threw him out a window, and they. But then they created the um, the myth that he, he was on LSD and he jumped out the window, which oh. is why people think that. You, have you ever heard like people say they don't want to take acid because yeah. they'll be afraid that they'll think they can fly and jump I out a window? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. where this that's where this comes from. It was in the mainstream media as this guy took LSD and jumped out a window because he thought he could fly. Wow. Well, you know, there's a lot of stories of people who have invented things that have become suppressed technology or medical techniques that they don't want out there. And a lot of those people commit suicide by jumping out of windows as well. <laughs> right. That's a, there's a pattern there. Right, right. But anyway, so it's interesting that you say that all that because essentially they wanted to, to introduce psychedelics into our society because they thought that it would make people more suggestible and they had been right. doing it you know experiments with it and decided i guess eventually to really just go with lsd and they thought that would make it more people more suggestible so then they start introducing it all into the hippie culture right and they're so like guys like owsley who's creating the lsd for the dead or timothy leary or terence mckenna they all have cia affiliations uh-huh uh-huh but this isn't like a good plan, is it? Does that actually work? We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But, you know, <laughs> even even if you look into the Grateful Dead, Phil Lesh is a Freemason and Bob Weir and um, the, one of the drummers, they're both, uh, what's the Alex Jones forest? Oh, oh, uh, Bohemian Grove. Yeah, they're Bohemian Grove guys, supposedly. So half of the Grateful Dead are affiliated <laughs> with these, like, 
control structure thing, you know, groups. And so supposedly they wanted to create like this whole thing in modern society that would destabilize the family. It would make people more suggestible and it would, uh, they call it soft kill eugenics because people would be experiencing, they'd be on drugs and they'd be experiencing what they consider to be like a prolonged adolescence. So they wouldn't have families. They wouldn't like propagate as much. And you know, like uh, probably with the hippies, they were getting powerful and they were really worried about what was going on with them. So they supposedly, there's a whole network of people that wanted to introduce LSD, these hallucinogens into society to create, essentially they're trying to recreate like the, the Eleusinian mysteries. They're trying to recreate the Dionysian and the moon goddess cults in our modern society through rock and roll and drugs. But the, the CIA was trying to do this? Yes, the CIA was pumping the LST into the society. I, mean, why, that's where did, I can see the CIA wanting to... No, no, I know that, but I can see them wanting to control people like for, in this uh -huh. sort of like patriarchal way that we were talking about before, but I can't see them wanting to... I thought the, the mystery schools and the Horus and stuff like that were more of matriarchal uh, nurturing societies. Well, I think it's just like everything else, it gets corrupted over time and then it turns into the control, right? Mm -hmm. and, and because also you've got this war going on between the Roman Empire and the Hermeticists, it seems to me that the CIA is an offshoot of the Hermeticist group, of the Masonic group in a way. But they're also kind of, when you look into all that stuff, you see that they're all kind of affiliated with each other. So then the Catholic Church and the CIA and the, and the, right. the Masons and all that stuff are all like different, different groups that are all sort of working towards the same goals of controlling the population. And right. they're all sort of, they all report back to the 13 families, which are like these, uh, they're, they're called like the, uh, the black nobility, essentially they're the, these like Italian named families that uh, <laughs> let me trace back to Venice and before that like Phoenicia, Phoenicia. Mm -hmm. and so it's like a whole control web of control system that sort of branched out and they fight with each other but they are also like all out there like fucking with society and destabilizing it and all that and what's interesting is that this guy Gordon Wasson wrote a book with Albert Hoffman and this guy named Carl Ruck, who was a Harvard professor, called The Road to Eleusis. And it was the first time that, you know, a modern society that they were trying to prove that these Dionysian and um, moon goddess cults were using hallucinogens in their mystery school traditions. And the book, it totally ruined uh, the, the Harvard professor Carl Ruck's career. Like he was totally ostracized for writing that book. <laughs> but the guy, this guy, Brian Mirror Rescue, he is a big fan of Carl Ruck, and he launched his whole study and investigation into if their hallucinogens were being used in the Dionysian and Moon Goddess cults to prove Carl Ruck's theory correct. <laughs> and, and what I noticed when I started looking into the Brian Mirror Rescue guy is that he has a ton of interviews with big names like Joe Rogan and all these different guys all over YouTube. So uh -huh. he's being heavily promoted. This idea uh -huh. is being really heavily promoted a few years ago. I think his book came out in like 2018 or something like that. 2019, 2020 maybe, I can't remember. 
but it was getting a really big push. So this whole idea is really being pushed really, I, 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 was, I feel like it's getting some sort of push from some, some propaganda machine. Jacob's Ladder, 
or the stairway to heaven. Could the body of Osiris actually be a stand-in for a futuristic device that opens a stargate to another realm? A device only able to be activated by a sacred priestess of royal lineage? Eventually, these hermetic traditions would transform with time and civilization, manifesting in another guise as the underground ceremonies of the triple moon goddess and the wine god Dionysus, and later as the early Gnostic Christian traditions. In the Egyptian city of Alexandria, subterranean hermeticists initiated the chosen into eternal life with the body and blood of Jesus. Isis and Horus metamorphosed into Mother Mary and the Divine Christ Child. And the star Sirius shined over the new kingdom as the star of Bethlehem, born again on Christmas Day as it rose above the horizon, following the lights of the three wise men of the belt of Orion. So essentially that this this whole thing that, that Jan Irvin is talking about is that there's this whole network of guys that are trying to recreate these Eleusinian mysteries in modern society and that leads to things like Woodstock and events like Burning Man. Uh-huh. And so that's, uh, I think we can wind down, we've been talking for quite some time now, but we can wind down with talking about your, I was curious what your experiences with Burning Man was and what you kind of make of that whole deal, and if you have a, if you have a take on it at all. <laughs> a hot Burning Man, a burning take. What 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 do you think it it was all about, really? What the experience is like, and you think it's important, or did you notice some weird shit happening there, or is it all that? What do you yeah. think? What do you make of it? Yeah. Well, I mean, it is. I've gone twice. It's definitely the most. Dionysian thing right? <laughs> that I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, it's complicated because they, when they put that Burning Man Black Rock City exists for a week out of the year and in that week it's the third largest city in Nevada, right? And then it's gone. So like any kind of city, <laughs> there's good, thing, good things happening there and bad things happening there. <laughs> How many people are we talking about? Uh, 60 to 70,000 people. Wow. Just out in the middle of the desert. Just out in the middle of nowhere. And they're, and they, and they build, they, they construct a city, you know, and the, they live in it for a week and then they destroy the city, you know, wow. burn it down. Not everything gets burned, but uh, a lot of it, a lot of the art does. And a, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff there is designed to be burned, you know, to look cool while it's burning, you know? Mm. I mean, it's really like, it's a very like impressive event. There's nothing like it. There are other like Burning Man style festivals that are like sure. it, but there aren't, there aren't anything. There's nothing else that's, there's no other like Coachella or something like that is not, is nothing like Burning no. Man, you know, like there's no. no. It's definitely light, Dionysian light. Coachella, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So when I went, you know, I helped build a, I, I was able to go with a friend who had an art project approved. So we were able to show up a week early and work on this art project to try and stand it up before the festival. So it was, it was an interesting experience because we show up and there's no, the, the desert is empty. They're, they have barely started any of the big art pieces. We 
check in at this booth and there's this guy with just this hippie guy with just a sarong around his waist and he's like he's like here follow this person he like checks us in and he's like follow this person they're going to show you where your art piece goes and then they drive us out and they take us to coordinates and then they have a cd and they just drill the cd into the ground and they're like build your art piece here you know and there's nothing else around it you know so we actually had trouble finding the cd that like the next day we like went to like set up our camp and then we were like where the heck was it you know where the heck are we supposed to be building but we went ahead and we built this um we spent a week building it you know about for 15 hours a day and it's it's like the harshest desert with nothing on it so there there's like sandstorms you know we're like working power tools and like white out sandstorm you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> trying. and the structure is like 12 feet tall and we don't yeah. have we didn't have a ladder we kept borrowing there was a bigger art team building something called the temple which is where what they um one of the bigger art pieces of the burn was nearby where we were building ours yeah. so we kept going over and borrowing a ladder from the temple and they gave they kept loading us this ladder with a broken step so it was like always like teetering and we were like up on the ladder like trying to build this 12-foot structure and um we did that for a week and then when we finished what was the structure it was a, it was called crowd controls controls with an s at the end controls and it was a octagonal structure it had animations projected on the inside and outside and led animations on the outside and there was a control panel in the middle and when you played with the control panel the animations would change on the the screens um so it was meant to be like an interactive kind of booth that people okay. could go play with it's an art piece though it was an art piece, yeah. And the animations, well, my friend Andy Kennedy was an animator, so he did all the animations himself and all the iterations of animations so that when somebody pressed a button, it would change, you know? Okay. Well, what was the theme of it? Like, what was it trying to show? It was just supposed to be playful. So the animations were dancing. So if you moved it around, it would dance in a different way, you know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Burning Man is a very playful event. There's lots of playful, like interesting yes. things to play with. Yeah. So we we did that for a week, and then we had a, a bigger camp that showed up when the festival started, and that we set up the camp, and then we sort of like lived as like a community for a week, and just sort of partied, you know, partied, mm -hmm. and then and then hung out together in our downtime, and and that that there that desert is the. It'll be like 100 degrees during the day and then 60 degrees at night. It's like 40 degree wow. swings. So yeah. everyone kind of tries to sleep. You build like a sage shade structure. Uh -huh. People try and sleep it during the day and then go out at night. You know? That makes sense. I mean, because yeah. everyone's partying at night. so Yeah, and it's comfortable and that's all the cool stuff is happening at night. Right. Yeah, all the lights and the, the dazzle. Oh, right. The so, so then the sun goes down in this super barren desolate most desolate nothing place on earth lights up and then people have leds on everything you i had leds all over my bike and you know you wear leds on your body and everything is like it's it's lit up like a mad las vegas you know it's like everything is shining there's music all over the place you know and um uh, and people you know it's a, it's very dionysian people there's dance parties all over the place. People do all sorts of drugs and try and really like try and really make it like the biggest. It's the biggest party in the world. There's no 
Yeah. There's no ifs, ands, or buffs, buts about it. There's no way right. to argue. It is <laughs> the biggest party in the world. You know, so so you can find any dance party anywhere. You can find, like, it, it's it's got everything that a city has. You know, you can mm-hmm. just wander around and, like, you know, someone will offer you a slice of pizza and, and you know, or you can just go to a bar and get a drink, you know, but there's no money. Everything is gifted. It's a gift economy. So you wow. give, you plan to give people things. And uh-huh. because everyone is planning to give all the time, you're always just sort of getting things, you know? Wow. And sometimes it's really like synchronistic where you'll be like, man, I wish I had a cup of coffee. And somebody's just like, here's some coffee, you know, like that kind of stuff happens all the time. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, like I remember one time we were doing a bike ride after partying all night and somebody was like, told me to, to sort of take the lead. And I was like, what do people want to do? And some guy was like, I'm pretty hungry because we had been out and the sun had come back up and we had been out all night. And uh-huh. so I wrote, I was like, okay. I was like, I don't know where I'm going. And I was like riding in this weird, I totally like took a wrong turn and went, went through this alleyway that didn't look like it was going anywhere. And then we came out the corner and this one guy was like, he was like, pancakes and Bloody Marys. You know, it was just like right there. It was like two. So the guy was like, I want something to eat. And like literally in under a minute, like we were being served right. pancakes and Bloody Marys. You said, I want uh, a plum floating in perfume served in a man's hat. And someone exactly. gave it to you. Yeah. Here you go, sir. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like in, in lots of ways, it's really cool. Um, yeah. And that you can like just play around for a week. You don't have to. You have to like bring... You have to take care of yourself and take care of your team. Like we had like a 25 person group and we took care of each other. We cooked for each other, cleaned and stuff like that, supported each other. And it's a very harsh place. So if you don't show up correctly, you can get in trouble. You know, there's not a lot of water or there's really no water. You have to bring all your water. Um, There's no power. You have to bring all your power to bring your shade you have to bring everything they, they don't supply anything the only thing they do supply is ice you can go and get bags of ice okay uh which is good because people need to refill their coolers you know for sure and there's no money and there's gifting economy and people are weird and people dress up and party and try and bring their best selves and in that in that sense it's like really really cool and interesting to see and it's like the wow factor is just really wow does it get overwhelming are you able to like ride it the whole time or do you kind of does it go in waves of like you're really enjoying it and then you're like i'm tired of being in the desert for half you know half a day and then (laughs) yeah the first year i went with i had 25 people in my camp and i only knew two of them beforehand and i throughout the course of the week i saw all 25 of them cry at one time or another did you cry (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, because it just gets—it's brutal in some ways. It's it's incredible and brutal and uh, oscillating between incredible and brutal all the time. You know, like so you'll go party, but then you'll go party too hard, and then the next day you'll be running ragged. You know, like and yeah. that kind of stuff happens. You know, and I remember when things are, were like I was having like a good time, and I was like, this is the most incredible thing ever, and all these people <laughs> are amazing. Uh-huh. And then, like, the next day, I was really, really hungover and just sort of, like, having a, on a low part. And I was just, yeah. like, thinking, like, I hate all these people. They're all dirty and <laughs> right? ugly. You know, it's just, right? like, the exact opposite. Though. Is there, like, a specific sequence that you can remember that was the one of the most mind-blowing things that happened to you? 
Yeah, I mean, man, it's kind of a, it's not, it's kind of like a not safe for work story a little bit, but it's not that bad. Um, I, I mean, uh, you don't have to tell it if you don't want it, but. No, no, I don't mind. I think okay. I, I just remember being, um, we were, we were on some, you know, having some fun times and uh, <laughs> out in the, there's this part of the desert they keep empty in the car art cars drive through and these cars are some of them are giant they have huge sound systems yeah and you can kind of go out in this desolate part of the desert and hear music you know hear like djs yeah yeah we were out there and partying and i think i was starting to come down but it was like this really cool like i was enjoying what was going on i didn't want to go home you know and so so i turned to one of my friends and i was like i think i'm starting to come down he grabs this woman and he was like, hey, like, do you still have that Adderall? She had Adderall. And she like, she she's like, yeah. And she opened up her mouth and it was like sitting on her tongue. Oh, dear. And uh, and um, we just started like making out and I ate the Adderall off of her. Wow. Off her tongue. <laughs> and then proceeded to like, and it was just, like one of those time release where you're just sort of like, um, uh, so it's not, it's, it doesn't like hit you super, um, it doesn't make you spaz out. It's like the kind that they, the doctors give. So it's, it's just like, keeps you yeah. like nice and awake. And, and I just sort of partied for the rest of the, for the rest wow, of the that's night. that's a beautiful like a sequence. Really, yeah. Had like just a really. That's exactly how you'd like someone to give you Adderall. Exactly. Exactly. And, proceed, and I proceed to have like the, it was like the best night of my life. Probably, yeah. You know, just. Wow. All right, what, and, and then when the, the burn actually happens, when they burn the man, what is that feeling like? Like, what is that experience of watching that happen? Like, is there a transformation that you experience I don't from like it. witnessing <laughs> it? You don't yeah, like I just, it. I dislike it. It's <laughs> absolute chaos. Like, the, yeah. um, and like, there's, so it's like, I sort of said I got to sh go there, you know, before anyone was there. And then, like, there's like, things change as time progresses. So then it's yeah. like, when the even on that first day when the festival opens so when you're when, if i was there before it opens there's no almost no one there mm -hmm. then the festival opens and people start to trickle in but some people are coming you know people are arriving all the time from the start from the very start to the very end so by the by the time they do the big burn every yahoo <laughs> has arrived it's just sort of like it feels like amateur hour you know it's just sort of like uh some people like uh, some people like I, I don't know like a lot of people bring a lot of creativity but some people like show up really sort of half-assed like a, sure you, you know you see like a guy just wearing jeans and a t-shirt with like a dumb hat you know and it's just sort of like there's more people than ever and you know people ride bikes so as the density increases and the, everyone's riding bike there's no like actual like really way to go on their bike there are streets but there's not like there's not a lot of cross sections and certain parts are just open so there's just people going in every direction you know and then it's mm -hmm. dark and everyone has lights on and you're trying to stay with your friends but there's so many people that you look away for a second and your friends are just gone you're like oh my god you know like and it's just sort of like a total shit show <laughs> So that that my experience of the burn both times has been it's a total shit show. They do a second burn of the temple on Sunday, and so usually uh -huh. what happens is they do the burn on Saturday night, and then they do the temple burn on Sunday. People start leaving after the the first the Saturday night burn like immediately, and the temple burn. So the temple, do you know what the temple is? 
I think it's the place where people like kind of leave their prayers and stuff like yes, that. They, so, they leave their prayers. So it's uh -huh. like a place to leave. People leave pictures of people who died that year. You know, they leave. Um, I saw a woman left like a, she had broken her spine and had a full body cast and she like left the cast. You know, she wow. brought the cast and like left it there. Uh, people just sort of leave bad memories and stuff like that. And um, and then, so, so then when they burn that one down, it's like you're burning all of the bad juju. You know, it feels really more meaningful. And mm -hmm. the first year I went, they had built the temple. We were actually doing our art piece next to the temple. So we were watching them construct it the whole time. And yeah. it was this, it was like a, um, how, the best way to describe it was that it was all made of wood. It's like a funnel coming out of the ground that's wider at the base and thinner at the top. And the, but the wood was constructed diagonally, so it's spiraling around. It's looked like a, it looks like a giant spiraling structure moving upwards. Okay. And when it burned, it created like a, like a flume in the a, fire. A vortex. A vortex and fire shot out of the top. It was like maybe that's 200 awesome. feet tall, you know, and wow. fire kind of shot up and then it, out of the top like a like a torch you know and then mm -hmm. it sort of collapsed in on itself and um you know at that point we were deconstructing we had been watching them build it the whole week while we were building our art piece and um there was actually it was they had trouble finishing it and we had trouble finishing our art piece so we were sort of like on the same wavelength you know they didn't yeah. or they weren't able to open the temple till wednesday which is really irregular usually it's open the first day but they had like problems constructing it and then when we were taking our art piece down, they burnt it. And, you know, by that time, a lot of the people had already left. And we just sort of like sat and watched it. And it was really powerful to see this place that, and when you go to the temple, it's like very quiet, you know, or there'll just be people crying, you know, it's like very sort of, it feels very sanctimonious. So like if you, there's a gravity there that's not anywhere else, you know, yeah, it can feel, it can feel very heavy, you know. And so watching it burn, watching them burn down all these like sort of bad memories was really um, freeing, you know, very sort of like, it felt like it was a beautiful experience. Hmm. Now, when you, after you've done that, do you feel like you're a different, do you feel radically transformed? You know, like what's the level of catharsis that you experience from doing this thing? I, I had like a year long catharsis from that. It changed, you had the effects of the experience lasted for a full year? I would say so, because you're just sort of like, you're just sort of like, oh, okay, like, I, I've been in this society my whole life, you know? And then it's like, okay, so what if we do everything different for a week, you know? It's like right. going to Mars, and it feels like Mars, because it's like, <laughs> you're in like a weird desert that's like, is it feels like Tatooine or something like that. It doesn't yeah. feel real sort of coming back from that and then being like oh maybe i can do everything maybe i can do things differently you know with like some things in my life differently maybe i can like be more imaginative or maybe i can be more giving you know just give people things like on the street why can't i just give strangers things on the street you know like maybe i'll try that you know maybe maybe i'll strap led lights to my bike and ride around town like that all the time because it's cool <laughs> and fun you know uh-huh it does sound very eleusinian mysteries in that way that you're supposed to be transformed by it that's what what i've read is that the people who experience the mysteries they are changed by it and it, it's a, a powerful 
transformative experience for them. And you know, it's supposed to prepare you, it's supposed to make you see death differently and mm -hmm. therefore see life differently. You have a new perspective, you've communicated with the afterlife, so now you're, you kind of have a, some knowledge about what it is and what maybe potentially awaits you and that potentially shows you who you are on this world, how you can be a different kind of a person on this world. And it sounds like it's that same kind of transformative. Right, but that's not even Burning Man specific. You know, people, I think a lot of people now they're doing in Portland they're you know mushrooms are completely legal yeah um, so you can take mushrooms and uh, people are using mushrooms for therapy and, a, right. and the, when compared to normal antidepressants like the you know Michael Pollan's been talking about this a lot like the success rate of mushrooms is much higher like like antidepressants are not distinct, barely, I think they're not actually distinguishable from a placebo for fixing depression, but yeah. like the rate of mushroom therapy of solving depression is very, very high, is much higher, you know? Um, I didn't like antidepressants when I took them. One made me psychotic and then the other one, it, it helped, I guess, but I, I mean, I didn't, I only took them for a couple months. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to like find another way out of depression. Yeah. That. Well, and the problem with antidepressants is that they're addictive, right? But oh, I didn't they're know actually addictive. Yeah. So when you go off them, they have to wean you off them, or you oh, wow. spaz out. And but like, there's nothing addictive about a, mu a mushroom. It, it's the opposite of addictive. When you take mushrooms, you're like, that was cool. Like I'm done. I'm done with this for a little while, though. I don't think I'm gonna yeah, go back there. Yeah, that's always you know? with a mushroom experience. Is like. That was powerful, but I'm not going to do that again right away. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying this is a panacea for fixing your life or anything like sure. that. I think a lot of people have bad times on mushrooms too. But Oh, of but, course, uh, yeah. But it seems like antidepressants are more like a band-aid. Like a, they're just there to cover the symptoms or, you know, like to, to cover it up as opposed to solve something. Yeah. per se so like if you were to go off of them you might just be the same fucked up person that you were before you were on them like, yeah it seems to me like the purpose of mushrooms when they interact with humans is that they transform consciousness in certain ways you know but my I, i'm going to talk about my ayahuasca experience in this episode i only did ayahuasca once and there's definitely like a before i did it and after Right. Yes, me. I had the same experience with that. Yeah. Absolutely. It was so potent. I was like, man, I'm not doing that again. Anymore. No, no. I don't can't. know how people, people do, but I, I'm like, I do not want that level of experience. But when I had that experience, that's what's helped me understand. I think it's informed this whole study of the Eleusinian mysteries. Is this? If you die before you die, then you won't die when you die. Because <laughs> right. I experienced an ego death for sure when I took ayahuasca Absolutely. and you know was confronted with all, all like in, intense terror and then incredible joy and right. knowledge knowledge from somewhere else so I think I experienced what they what the Eleusinian mysteries are potentially offering right. through doing I taking ayahuasca and I didn't feel like I, once I got it I was like okay that was wonderful and horrifying and intense and amazing and I I learned what I need to learn but I don't need to learn that again yeah yeah you know what I mean yeah 
Well, there's so there's a famous story. Oh, well, this is in the... Do you watch the Fantastic Fungi movie, right? I didn't see the whole movie. Well, so Stamets is, is the guy who's like the Pacific Northwest, like mycologist extraordinaire who's like growing mushrooms and stuff like that. And he kind of starts the movie with this story about how he used to have a stutter and he yeah, took yeah. mushrooms and he climbed into a tree and there was a storm came through and... Uh, he, because he was on mushrooms, he was acting weird. So he stayed in the tree through the storm. And when he climbed down, his stutter was gone, you know? And that was like that this, like the transformative nature of like changing your perception is was literally so powerful that it was able to rewire his brain to not stutter, you know? That's like- that's amazing. That's like- quite a success story like if that and i don't think he i don't think he knew that was going to happen but i mean like what a what an amazing result you know yeah i mean that's proof it's like direct proof like you do this and it cures that right right I mean, what more do you need really right and i think that when people have like these ex good positive experiences from doing this kind of therapy is yes. it's because their perception they, you know, they see you have pathways in your brain and they grow, your brain makes connections and then those connections become hardwired so that you can reference them more, right? Like the same mm -hmm. way, like if you're playing basketball, you practice a lot so you get better at basketball, right? And yeah. that's how your brain creates uh, efficiencies and makes you good at things. But sometimes it, it gets wired poorly and you have these connections that aren't positive for you and it creates depression or something like that and you're yeah. always and your brain is now hardwired if depression efficiently you know so you're extremely depressed and that then you being able to change your perception via the psychedelics allows you to break those connections and make new ones that you can't do otherwise yeah we're, we've been talking about the relationship between like uh, the, the mycelium network and, you know, the nervous system or the brain. So it makes sense, you know what I mean? In a way that it affects the brain that way. It's almost like it's designed. Yeah, but it, it also feels very mysterious and sort of like magical too, you know? Yes. At the same time. It's fun. It can be potentially fun. I mean, it can be terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, okay, man. Well, look, um, we've been talking for about three hours. That's probably enough. I'm going to have to chop this episode in half. So there's going to be a King's Chamber part two and three, I think. Well, you can cut out some stuff if you want to, too. That doesn't bother Maybe, you. but see, I'm going to add things to this episode. Because <laughs> I've got all this research that I want to talk about that has to do with Osiris and the mystery schools and stuff like that. All this amazing info, actually. It's really cool. So... I'm really excited to make this episode because I'm going to try like a whole different technique of assembling the, the episode and I like a lot of what we talked about an awful lot so it, um, I guess if I come upon some stuff that I feel I can get rid of I will but chances are that I'll be adding shit to it so. Well you're not you're not going to hurt my feelings and I, honestly it would probably reflect better on me if you just took a best of. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I can hurt your feelings right now. Your butt looks like your nose. Uh, <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Look, that's awesome. You did a great job. Thank nice you. work. 
and great work in general. I thought this was a great conversation. Um, it's very rare that I talk for three hours with anybody, so um, I feel like we could have kept going. There's so much to this idea that uh, I was like, how am I gonna, I was, I've been researching for days and I'm like, how the fuck am I gonna talk about this stuff with Mark? And we, I only touched on like a fraction of all the stuff yeah, that I've been yeah. looking into, but it's such a, like a, this episode is definitely a culmination episode of everything. Um, so I think this is gonna be a great, a really cool episode and I'm really excited to do the sound design for it and try some different approaches with it and I loved our conversation so. Awesome, so, so thank yeah. you man, you did you did great and you were the, you were, uh, you were worth it Mark. You were uh -huh. worth it all this time trying to get you on the show and <laughs> you, you, it, you really made it happen. I'm really proud of you man. You I did it. it. Well, I love talking yeah. to you, buddy. That's, that's Likewise. the bonus. Likewise. That's the bonus. It's the bonus episode, and the bonus is that we both get to uh, both get to hang out for a couple hours. Yeah. I mean, when's the last time you talked to anyone for three hours? I mean, it, this probably happened, but maybe not on the phone. Definitely not with a microphone. Yeah, well, that's, see, this is podcasting, bro. <laughs> As uh, Anakin Skywalker once said, this is podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> And this is podcasting for you, my wonderful listeners. Thank you for listening to the Post Relevant Podcast, where we burn the man and dive into the underground chamber to drink the kookion, the ergot or mushroom or um, uh, lizard-laced broth that transforms us and leads us on into the next life where we confront the god of the underworld <laughs> and are transformed forevermore under the silver lake wow thanks for listening very love y'all be nice to each other do good things Transform the earth into a beautiful place. Let's do it. Love. Deal? Love each other. <laughs> Love each other. Love each other. <laughs> At least have fun, goddammit. <laughs> have some fun. Lighten up a little bit. Yeah, take That's it easy. my advice. Jesus Christ. All right, Mark. Talk to you soon, buddy. Cool, man. Peace out, y'all. See you next episode. Later. not gonna do it for this super mega episode 20 of the post relevant podcast the king's chamber part three through the lion's gate stay tuned after the credits we'll be passing through the lion's gate and i'll be telling you my story of the one and only time i took ayahuasca very special thanks to returning guest carl restino for his stories of growing mushrooms and walking Hadrian's Wall. You can find out more about Carl if you go to Carl Rostino on Instagram and Carl Rostino's art page on Facebook. 
And you can hear his podcast with Brother Andy and co-host Chris Peters if you look up Welcome to the Art Shed anywhere on the interwebs. Also, very special thanks to returning guest Mark Rustino for telling us all about the mycelium network, panspermia, and his adventures at Burning Man on parts two and three of The King's Chamber. You can find out more about Mark if you look up Mark Rustino on Instagram. Huge thanks to the works of Holizna CC0 who composed all of the incredible music you've heard on the last three episodes. You can hear tons of samples of his work if you look up H-O-L-I-Z-N-A-C-C-0 on freemusicarchive.org. Do yourself a favor and check out his music. It's freaking amazing. If you'd like to learn more about my work, you can go to theseardreams.com to see tons of samples of my acting, art, and music. And you can contact me on Facebook and Instagram at Phil Rostino. And if you go to Instagram.com forward slash Phil Rostino, you can see all the cool poster art that I've made for the show and lyrics and videos, the full 5D post-relevant experience. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to patreon.com forward slash post relevant. Okay, so normally I would end the podcast right about here, but for the super mega episode 20, I decided to include a story about the one and only time I took ayahuasca and the reason I'm telling this story is because it's relevant to this whole journey that I've been on for the past year, trying to decipher under the Silver Lake and looking into mythology and the sort of pagan spiritual practices that used to go on in the West. I think that I experienced it, what they used to do for real. And uh, so I thought you would, if you want to stick around and listen, I thought you'd really get something out of it. I realized that this is a big ask to ask the listener to listen to a three hour long episode, but I think there's a method to my madness. I really think this adds an extra exclamation point to the end of this journey. So please stick around and check it out. Only one more episode to go, and then we'll be done with Decoding Under the Silver Lake. Thank you so much for listening to the Post Relevant Podcast. Are you still here? All right then, here we go. Chapter eight, Through the Lion's Gate. Through the gates of Leontopolis, sights of Lyralu descending in magnificent Mercabic sailed solar schooners places of the seraphim sacred portals interdimensional guarded by the stoic sphinx 
sort of about or what it's doing the king's chamber Osiris the lore the underground the psychedelics the transformation it's all part of this story somehow and that's why I wanted to tell my story I can't remember what year it was I'm guessing it was like 2008 or something could have been 2011 or 12 could have been 2004 matter does it anyway I had this experience where I took ayahuasca and I wanted to tell you the story all about it I've been hearing about ayahuasca for years people who've experienced DMT I'd done psychedelics before LSD mushrooms they always
always filled me with quite a bit of anxiety to do. But then there'd be these moments where you'd learn something new or experience something you'd never seen before or see the whole world in a whole new light. Sometimes the beauty was almost devastating. Anyway, I hadn't really been doing any psychedelics for a long time. I kind of had moved past that phase in my life. I was living in New York City again. I was part of a... The way that I remember this story is that I was part of an improv group. It was a Star Trek improv group. We would do long-form Star Trek episodes in the style of the original series. It's got to be one of the dorkiest things I've ever done. Although, you know, I like sci-fi. I like Star Trek. I've always liked it. But it is sort of uh, stiff sometimes. It's kind of why I like those that first J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie, because it had the swashbuckling nature to it. Fun. It was fun. I wanted to do science fiction improv, and uh, a friend of mine was working with a guy who was starting a Star Trek improv group in New York City, and so I auditioned for it, and I got in, and we had started doing shows downtown. Um, probably we'd been doing it for at least a year by this point, and somehow he had gotten us a gig at the New York Comic Con, which is like the New York City version of the San Diego Comic Con. I think it's sort of run by the same group, so it's a big convention in New York City. So we were going to go there, all in costume, and do a full-length version of our show. But for some reason, simultaneously with doing the New York City Comic Con with the Star Trek group, I had paid money, probably at least 300 bucks, to be a part of some group that would take ayahuasca and be a part of a ceremony. It was going to take place in New York City at a, like a yoga studio just above Houston Street, and I think it was like Rosh Hashanah that weekend or something like that. It was a Jewish holiday, and also the Pope was in town, pretty sure. So, some sort of weird spiritual significance that weekend. Anyway, I paid my money, and I decided I was going to go and do this thing. I don't know why. I, I you know, I do things like that. I, I something get stuck in my head and I think about it for a while until I muster up the courage to start doing it. I've been on this weird spiritual path for decades and I think the latest thing that I had been pursuing, which was like vortex healing, which was actually a really amazing meditation process that I've been a part of for like seven years or something like that and then it had all fallen apart. So I was probably like searching for what the next thing was to do. I think that's what was going on. And somehow I had gotten in my head that I was gonna do ayahuasca, so. So that day that the ayahuasca was gonna happen in the evening, the ceremony would happen in the evening at this yoga studio in New York City. But that day, people from the improv group, we all went to the New York Comic Con just to walk around and get a sense of the place and enjoy it. It's always fun to walk around comic book convention for a while, if only just to see everybody's crazy-ass costumes. Then maybe you get to meet creators that you admire, or listen to them talk, or see lots of cool art, while the exhibit booths are pretty entertaining. I don't know. It's fun. Anyway, as I'm recording this, it's September 14, 2022. I'm 
guessing the Comic-Con was sometime around this time. So we went to the comic book convention that day. It's like a Saturday. It's a ton of people. It's thousands of people all walking around. So big crowds. So I'm walking around a really busy area. I think it's near like a big staircase. And I run into a friend of mine. I'm not gonna give his name. Let's call him G. It's in the middle of a huge cluster of people. So the idea that I could have walked into somebody that I knew was unlikely. But there he was. So we said what up and we shot the shit for a little while. He was there because he was a writer, a screenwriter. And I think he was there pitching a script. You know, the New York City Comic Cons are more than just comic books, obviously. It's all sorts of entertainment, so he must have been there trying to get a script read. So we talked about that a little bit. I think I told him I was there for the Star Trek group. And, uh, you know, after a little while, that was it. We peaced out, and um, I walked away. I probably didn't think that much of it and enjoyed the rest of the day. But all the while, in the back of my head, I know that I'm going to take ayahuasca that night and have an intense experience, which in hindsight probably isn't a great idea if you're going to perform the next day to stay up all night on a mind-altering, life-altering psychedelic. But it is what it is, these things that all had coincided. So after I left the convention, I went back to my place in Brooklyn, got ready to go back into Manhattan. I was supposed to be there around 9 at night at the yoga studio for the ceremony. So as it's closing in, I'm on the train going into Manhattan, I'm feeling nervous. I'm feeling really nervous. I'm feeling scared. I'm doing this all by myself, you know. No one's making me do it. I'm making me do it. But I know I'm going in for, you know, this intense experience and I'm, I'm feeling a lot of apprehension. And you know, I find with things like this that your ego starts to really kick up a storm because some part of you knows that uh, your ego is going to be confronted or overtaken <laughs> by something more powerful than it. So I'm starting to have a, you know, a real case of fear and nerves as I'm getting there and going in and I'm walking towards the space and I'm praying to God, please give me a sign. You know, is this the right thing for me to be doing? I shouldn't do this. Maybe I could just stop and not do it. Maybe it's a bad idea. I gotta perform tomorrow. Maybe I won't be able to handle it. You know, am I gonna freak out? Am I gonna lose my fucking mind? So I'm scared. And I'm praying, please God, give me a sign. If I'm supposed to be here, give me a sign. And I go in, and there are people starting to sit in a big circle in this big wide open room with big windows and wooden floor. So I go and I take a spot, I sit on the floor, and I'm feeling nervous, I'm not really talking to anybody in the room. I pull out my plastic bag, because you're supposed to bring a plastic bag because the ayahuasca is going to make you vomit, because it goes after like poisons in your body and expels them. So I'm sitting there and I'm praying, God, please give me a sign. If I'm supposed to be here, give me a sign, give me a sign. And in walks my friend. G that I had met earlier in the day in the middle of huge crowds at the New York City Comic Con. And behind him come two other people that I knew. And I realized, oh yeah, months before at like parties, these guys have been telling me about their experiences of doing ayahuasca. 
they've been doing it for a while. I definitely remember having a conversation with G and another friend that was there, and they were telling me about it and, and what a wonderful experience it is and how meaningful it was to them. And this is months before, or weeks before, I don't know. Time, what is time? <laughs> so I realized, yeah, shit, oh yeah, they had told me about that they used to do it. And they come in and G sits down right next to me and the other two friends sit down next to him and you know, I'm like, what's up? We're probably talking about how crazy it was that we ran into each other earlier that day. But neither one of us had talked about that we were going to go and do this thing this evening. So there was my sign. What's the odds of that? Them walking in to this ceremony at nine at night, sitting down next to me as I've been praying for a sign. Praying for a sign. So there it was. So, okay, I'm in. It's going to happen. So we're probably talking and I'm trying to settle myself down, you know, because I'm nervous anyway. The sun's going down, it's starting to get dark, and the, the circle is filling in. Soon there's everybody there, and we're, we're given the lowdown, like here's how this is going to work. And they say that first we're going to pass around a tobacco cigarette, and that's ceremonial. Everyone's supposed to, you know puff on it a little bit and pass it to the next person. It's not psychoactive. It's not like pot or something. And then they'll bring out the ayahuasca, the medicine, as they say. The medicine. And each person, starting with the closest person to the shaman, who's sitting at one spoke on the wheel, let's just say, in the circle, whoever's closest to him will get up and go to him and he'll give them a glass of it and they'll drink it go back and sit down and then the next person will get up and drink it and go back and sit down it'll go like that until everybody in the circle has had a cup full of the ayahuasca the medicine so that's how it's gonna work I'm pretty sure the shaman was from Peru if I remember correctly a short man with dark skin and a mustache and straight black hair and I'm pretty sure he has at least three female assistants it could have been more, but I'm gonna say three in keeping with the theme of Under the Silver Lake. A shaman and three women. <laughs> it's funny the way those kind of things work. And they say, you know, if you wanna leave the room for any reason, you have to go up to this one guy that's sitting near the door and you have to get his permission to leave. I don't know why they do it like that, but he was the guy, the gatekeeper. <laughs> anyway, so then it starts. Everybody passes around the cigarette that goes around the circle. I don't like smoking tobacco that much, but ceremonially, of course. And then they invite people to come up and start having the medicine. So one by one, people get up, starting from the person closest to the shaman, and drink a cupful of it. I was at about, if the shaman's at 12 o'clock, I'm at 9 o'clock on the circle. You're watching as each person one by one gets up and does the walk around the circle and kneels or stands next to the shaman and drinks, goes back to their seat. And eventually it's me, I go up, I walk around the circle, I walk up to the shaman, he gives me the class. I drink it. You know, everybody always says that ayahuasca tastes terrible, but this was in like fruit juice or something, I don't know. But 
I don't remember it being that bad, honestly. It's not, it's always described as foul tasting. You know, listen to like Graham Hancock or somebody. A foul tasting broth. But I don't remember it being that bad. And I went back to my seat and sat down. So then you're just sitting there and you're waiting. The people after me from nine o'clock in the circle to 12 o'clock in the circle are getting up behind me and going around and drinking, coming back to their seats. I think I'm sitting down cross-legged on the mat, trying to meditate a little bit, you know, just trying to relax, but I'm fucking nervous, you know? What's gonna happen? How bad is this gonna be? And you know, you're supposed to ceremonies like this and I hadn't done really any sort of physical or psychological preparation for this really. I was just freeballing it, just going for it. Probably stupid. I don't know. Sometimes I just do stuff like that. Sometimes you just gotta do it. You have to force yourself to jump off the cliff, right? So I'm sitting there, I'm guessing maybe 15 minutes past, maybe a little more sitting there with my eyes closed, trying to relax, and I think I started to get sick. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm the first person in the room who starts puking. So I puke into the plastic bag. But look, when I did psychedelics in the past, they would always come on really quickly for me. Especially like mushrooms. The first time I ever did mushrooms had been decades before, and it was really intense and amazing. But I remember like forgetting my name, couldn't read, writing, stuff like that. It's, oh, the sky was amazing looking. But it always comes on quick and hard for me. And this is just my experience, but I think I'm the first person who's really starting to trip. I throw up, and I'm trying to settle myself down. I'm trying to sit there with my eyes closed, and I'm starting to hallucinate behind my eyes. And it's upsetting me. I remember seeing a nine-pointed star in a circle. I think it was a nine-pointed star, either nine or seven. I always thought it was nine, though. As if I was, like, breaking through a seal or something in my mind. That's the way I interpreted it. So I'm trying to sit there and meditate, but I'm starting to hallucinate, and my mind is super uh, active and Especially with things like hallucinations, it, it, it'll, it, I can be prone to go towards the bad side of a hallucination. The side of me that dwells in the darkness. I think I'm just filled with lots of fear. And it manifests as disturbing imagery in my head. It's gotta just be stress, right? I don't know. So, I give up on trying to breathe and, with my eyes closed. And I'm starting to get scared. <laughs> starting to get really scared and my mind's starting to get away from me. When a psychedelic starts to come on and come on strong, it's overwhelming. So I'm starting to feel this feeling of like, oh no, what have I done? What have I done? This is a horrible mistake. <laughs> I shouldn't have done this. And then it starts to go into, my thoughts start to go into, I've invited something evil into my soul. I've invited something evil into my soul and it's going to take me over and rule me. The devil is going to take me over and rule me. I grew up Catholic and I don't know why, but I always had this fear of the devil. 
I don't remember them pushing the devil on us that much. Maybe they did, I don't, I don't know. I mean, a lot of that shit you learn before you're conscious to know what you're learning about. But I remember when I was a kid, I used to do my paper route and I'd have to go and collect money from the customers. Sometimes I'd do it at night, and so I'd be riding my bike around the neighborhood at night, and I'd be a little freaked out, because it was nighttime. And I'd hear my heartbeat beating in my ears, and I would think, it's the devil coming to get me. A crazy thought. So weird. So this fear of the devil has been like, somewhere in the back of my psyche, for as long as I can remember. I guess it just comes up at this moment. So I've taken this powerful hallucinogen and it's taking me over, I can feel it. And I don't want to have terrible, horrifying hallucinations because I know a bad trip will suck. But it's too late, I've taken it and I've vomited, so that means it's on, it's game on. And now I'm gonna go on the trip and I'm fucking freaking out. Oh no, I've let the devil into my soul and it's gonna take over me. And usually when I start to have thoughts like this, I want to get alone, apart from other people, and collect myself. So I decide to do that. I decide I'm going to leave the room and see if I can collect my thoughts. So I get up and I walk around the circle to the door. And I ask the guy, can I leave? And he lets me out. And I walk out into like the ante room, the, the, the foyer or whatever you want to call it, but it's like the waiting room or whatever, but it's a big space with couches and shit. But it's dark in there. And I go to the bathroom and I'm thinking, you know, maybe I have to take a shit. Maybe that's why I'm stressing out. So I go into the bathroom, turn on the lights, I look in this big mirror, and I realize that I'm wearing this shirt that I have from the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. I'd worn this shirt especially for this occasion. And all it is, is an image of the, the main astronaut's face. What was his name? I want to call him Archer, but it's not that. But it's the final astronaut that goes into the monolith at the end of the movie. It's his face as he's looking into the monolith and the lights are reflecting off of his helmet. It's a really psychedelic image and it's his eyes are wide open, his wide blue eyes. And he's, he's staring into the abyss of the monolith. You know, I thought it would be clever, I guess, to wear the shirt or something, or meaningful. But I look at it and I'm like, oh my God, that's just too intense. So I took my shirt off and turned it on inside out, put it back on. I tried to take a shit and I really couldn't go to the bathroom. Probably like splashing water on my face, trying to collect myself. I realize, all right, this isn't working. So I walk back out, and now I'm really on ayahuasca, you know, it's happening. And I'm back out of the bathroom and into the, the waiting room, and it's dark in there, and I can't really figure out how to get back into the yoga room where everyone's doing the ceremony. So I'm just sort of standing there, like wondering, what do I do? I mean, I don't know if you've ever taken psychedelics, but sometimes you just can barely function on them. One of my friends says, when he used to do acid, he says, he had two rules for doing acid. The first one is you can't fly. And the second one is all cars are real, which I think are two good rules when you're on LSD. But I mean, that just sort of explains like how sort of strangely incapacitated you become on a powerful psychedelic. 
can't fly, and cars are real. All cars are real. Anyway, I'm just standing there like, duh, in this dark anteroom, and the door swings open, and one of the three female assistants comes out, and she looks mad. I don't know if I'm just making up that she's mad. She looks mad, and she grabs me, and she forces me back into the room where the ceremony is taking place. And they walk me into the center of the circle and they sit me down. They have to like force me down onto this little rug. It's like a little mat on the ground, the rug. And the way I look at it is that that is the shaman's operating table and he's gonna operate on your soul. So they bring me down onto this little rug and it's pitch black. It's really dark in the room now and I'm really scared. And the shaman comes up to me I don't remember exactly how this worked out, but I'm crying, I'm freaking out. And he starts blowing like tobacco on my face and talking to me really up close. But he's just a shadow. I can't see his face, it's just a shadow talking to me. And then I remember there was one woman who was holding me almost as if I'm laying back into her arms. She's like kneeling on the ground and holding me in her arms. And there's another assistant who's standing above me and she's got a giant, I'm guessing it's like an eagle wing. And she's waving it back and forth over me. I remember looking at her and like, is this a goddess? What is this? She's waving this wing, it looks humongous. It does sort of remind me of like the Egyptian hieroglyphs of those giant wings waving it over me. This one woman's holding me in her arms and there's probably a third woman doing something, maybe helping the shaman. And the shaman's blowing tobacco smoke in my face. And I'm trying to tell him that if he is there to possess my soul and the devil's gonna take me over and try to turn me evil, that I won't go along with it. I'm trying to tell him that, that I will not allow the devil to possess me, possess my soul. But all I can say is, I will only do good for this world. I'm crying and I'm saying, I will only do good for this world. And he's blowing tobacco smoke in my face and he's saying, pray for the world. Pray for the world. honestly so as this all is happening something starts to change and the, the woman's still holding me and the other woman's still waving the eagle wing and he's still talking to me and blowing cigarette smoke on me tobacco but it starts to change and it starts to change from this incredibly horrific feeling inside of me Terrifying, utter terror, incredible beauty. Just incredible beauty and joy. And I start to hear these voices. So it changes and it becomes this incredibly beautiful experience, this joyous, beautiful, ecstatic 
feeling. And these voices are talking to me in my head. I don't know if they're whispering or talking, but it's like a bunch of voices and they're all just telling me stuff. And it's as if, it's as if I'm downloading all of the knowledge of the universe. As if these voices are telling me all the secrets of the universe. And it's so beautiful. I wish I could really describe the way it felt, but it, beauty is the best word. And these voices are just telling me everything. I, I know it. I'm feeling like I know everything. <laughs> I know everything. It's amazing. But of course, at this point now, if you ask me, well, what did they tell you? What did they tell you? I have no idea what they told me. And I'm not even sure it's important. But I guess at that moment, whatever it was they were telling me, they were telling me whatever I needed to know about the universe. But I retained a couple things that they told me. Only a couple little tiny morsels of information. Here's what I remember. told me that I had chosen to come to this planet. That was one thing. I chose to come to this planet. They told me I was an angel. And that we were all angels. Honestly, that's all I can remember. And I mean... I don't know how long this all went on for, but it doesn't matter. Again, time, irrelevant. But apparently those were the things that I needed to consciously remember. I had chosen to come to this planet, and that I was an angel, and that we were all angels. And you know, I'd spent a long time in my life just feeling trapped inside of my life, spending years alone, deep feelings of depression, suicide, loneliness, despair. I'd suffered through a lot of stuff in my life, disease, heartbreak, insanity, loss, poverty, a lot of poverty. That's a tough one. Anyway, you start to feel trapped inside of your life. What am I doing here on this planet? This, I don't understand it. I don't know how to live right. I don't know how to make it better. Nothing I do works. I don't belong here. I don't fit in. No one loves me. I barely love myself. I don't want to be here. Years wanting to die. Just feeling completely alone. And the thought that I had chosen to come to this world, that some part of me exists outside of this planet, this time, space, this dimension, and wanted to come here for some reason, needed to have an experience on this planet, or just chose to, wanted to. There's something to learn, something to do, something to experience, a reason that the higher part of me thought it would be a good idea to come to planet Earth. <laughs> 
chose it though, that it wasn't forced upon me, that I chose it. I chose it. Something about that knowledge, there's a freedom inside of that. I guess it gives it back to you that you're not just a victim here on this planet, that you're a participant that chose to be a part of this world, chose to be a part of this age, this time, a willing participant. Now they say that we're going through an incredible transformation at this point in time in the world's history, that potentially we are going to be ascending as an entire planet. Some people say that an entire planet ascending into a higher dimension altogether at the same time has never happened before. Supposedly we've moved into a higher charged area of space of the galaxy and that the Earth, the Earth herself, is going through her ascension and we're all along for the ride. And also that people from all over the universe have come to this planet and incarnated here or are off planet in ships, watching, helping, guarding us, protecting us. That everyone's here, everyone's eye, and the universe is fixed on this planet at this moment in time because we're all about to ascend. That this place of hardships, challenges, war, famine, disease, fires, floods, hatred, bigotry, confusion, evil. It's all going to change. The lower density experiences that we're all gonna, that we've all been having, they are not gonna be allowed to happen here anymore. We're all going to shift and change all at the same time, and it's gonna happen soon, soon, soon. Any day now, the solar flash transforming the consciousness and mass. Will it happen? I don't know, but I sure as fuck hope it does. I sure as fuck hope it does. But maybe we all chose to come here from all over the universe to experience this transformation simultaneously all together. And it'll be the greatest event in the history of the planet. We all chose to come here. Anyway, hopefully that's what's happening as I talk now in 2022, September 14th. When it was time for them to stop waving the feathers over me and blowing tobacco on me and holding me. I got up and I went back to my mat, sat back down, filled with joy. So weird. And they would give people an opportunity to get back up and have another glass of ayahuasca. You can go up and drink as many as you want, I guess. But man, my one experience was so intense, I couldn't bring myself to go up and take any more. I didn't feel the need to, honestly. There were a couple other things that happened that night. From my position in the circle, I was really close to where the shaman's quote-unquote operating table was. And I remember him bringing this woman to that little rug in the center, you know, in the, in, inside the circle. It wasn't in the center of the circle, but it was closer to me, really. And they're standing together on the rug, and the shaman has a harmonica. And he's playing the harmonica at her. And as he plays the harmonica at her, it draws these wails of sadness out of her. I mean, people don't do that the way she was wailing. 
He was using music to play her soul and draw out the sadness inside, playing her soul with a harmonica, drawing out the wails of sadness. Her whole body would undulate with it. It was like, like a guy taming a cobra with a flute. It was wild to watch, man. He was playing her soul. There was another moment where I was lying on my back with my head towards the center of the circle and I, I don't know what it was, but you kind of start to feel the groove. You can feel the groove. So moods will sort of get passed around in the groove and I, I started laughing. I started laughing really loudly. I could feel the groove start laughing too. I'm lying on my back laughing and the shaman says, First he's crying, then he's laughing. And I said, what's the difference? The shaman said, that is true medicine wisdom. <laughs> what's the difference between crying and laughing? And you know, right now that reminds me, I had this experience decades ago where I met this Blackfoot medicine man in Seattle. He was a homeless man and he was talking to me and he would say, you breathe in, you breathe out, you live. You breathe in, you breathe out, you die. It's the same thing. You laugh, you cry, it's the same thing. He didn't say that, he said the first part. I don't know if this is a, a native people's wisdom. It's a perspective, it's a knowingness that it's energy just moving through the system and manifesting in different ways, the laughter, the crying, it's a release of energy. Those were moments that stood out. The reason I wanted to tell this story is because I think that this is the experience that Under the Silver Lake is talking about, and this is the Gnostic experience, this is the shamanic experience that people from all areas of the world have been practicing for probably thousands of years, this sort of basic experience where you take this powerful hallucinogen, you have an ego death, you face your dark side, you transform it into light, and you speak with spirits on the other side. And they impart wisdom in you, give you perspective, teach you more about this reality, what it is, what we're doing here, why we exist. They grow your soul, they help grow your soul. I think that I experienced this this thing that Under the Silver Lake is alluding to with the, the man and the three women in the hut, and the meeting of Osiris underground, the homeless king, Osiris, the god of death and resurrection, the underworld and the afterlife, Osiris, whose temple, the Great Pyramid, points towards the stars, most likely. They were doing hallucinogens and projecting their souls out into the cosmos. Maybe they're sending their souls back home where they came from. These other stars, these other heavens, they knew this, and this was the tradition. And it still lives on to this day. We're doing it now. It's still happening to us. It's at least part of the tradition. Now, I'm not saying that you have to do hallucinogens. I don't think that's the only way, obviously. There's many other ways. There's probably safer ways. 
honestly, less uh, frightening. But this is an old shamanic tradition, and I know they always say that the, the Native Americans had this tradition, people in the East have this tradition, but there's no shamanic tradition for the West. People in Africa have this tradition, but there's no shamanic tradition for the West. And no, that's not true. They would drink the blood of Dionysus and meet Persephone underground. cross over into the underworld, as shown by the story of Osiris and Isis, descend to the heavens. It's been happening as long as there's been language, probably, as long as there's been civilization. And maybe this way of doing it with the plant medicine is a way of evolving with the planet, with the earth, and understanding that nature speaks to us directly in these ways. We come from the earth and our physiognomy, our chemistry in our body is designed, our, our, our temple in our head, the rising of the kundalini up the spine to the temple in the head, the third eye igniting, crown chakra alighting, in conjunction with the medicine from the planet. Maybe this is a way of teaching us that we come from this planet and that we are to grow with it and work in symbiosis with it. Somehow, somehow, somehow we'll all get it right. Somehow. I wouldn't say it's an experience that every woman should have, but if you do have it, prepare yourself. scary but it's sort of like getting on a roller coaster probably a lot of fun once it's over I'm glad I did it met with the goddess talked to the other side they talked to me each other from the shackles that we bound each other in, forgive each other for our sins, 
remember that we can choose to love each other. At all times, we can choose a better path. At any time, at all times. We can make this world better for each other. We don't have to punish each other. We don't have to treat each other like we are others. We're all one. We are the multitude. We are the I am. We are the I am. That's my prayer that we all remember this. We change this world back into a heaven. Because that's where the angels live. Sooner.